1966 episode, it is another big season with the Saints starting the season on fire, looking to bounce back from their grand final loss in 1965. North Melbourne return to their spiritual home, while Fitzroy ponder whether their future is at Brunswick Street Oval. Richmond and Geelong both have new coaches and Collingwood find themselves in a position they haven't been at in years. All this and more coming up after the song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazmaz To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast, the Australian Rules Football History podcast. It takes a deep dive into the history of the league. None of us have any qualifications, but we like talking about history. Um, welcome, lads. I love uh, history. Again. Oh, good to, good to see you all. We might not be uh, in person, but at least I can see your beautiful faces. i got Moz up on her screen. Hello, everybody. Indeed. So the 1966 season is going to be a huge one. And yes. we've got big, big news to talk about, Charlie, and that is... I beat you in fantasy. <laughs> I know, devastating. I am the the new, I've, I've ended Kaz's reign of terror. I'm the new champion. Well, hang on. Let's, I ended Kaz's reign of terror, and then you ended my very short reign of terror. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to see you guys spread your wings and fly. And I'll <laughs> yep. be back next no, time. No, well, well played, Jimmy. You definitely deserved it. My, my team did not stand up under the pressure that was the grand final. We're, we've had our, our end of season review and we've, we've all left the club and we'll just see who returns next year. Yes, indeed. Um, we're in disarray. We don't know where our problems were. Um, all right. So let's just make a start, I suppose. Yes, wait. All right. Now, Charlie, before we get into any of the teams today, I mean, we need to mention that the Demons, they are in the grand final. Can you believe it? It is... It's- Beyond it's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, like, if we think about, you know, it's it's crazy to think of. I mean, it's been a, it's been a, a wild ride this year, right? It's felt it's felt pretty good, and crazy to think that a, cu- a couple of years ago we were in a, we were in the prelim, and then since then the wheels kind of felt like they'd fallen off again. Yeah. And we kind of gone gone through that thing of you know feeling really positive and. And then back to it. And then this year's kind of just been going from strength to strength. And now here we are. What, what does it feel like? We was, is it surreal? It is. It's it's totally surreal. The fact, I mean, it's more surreal. The fact that it's under these circumstances is disappointing. But, you know, that's that's part and parcel of it. And I'd, I'd, take, I'd take being in the grand final over not being in it any time, no matter oh, when it is. Would. Of course you would. Um, but it does make it extra surreal. I think um, the fact that, you know, there's so much um, talk about, you know, these star, these stars of the past and, and things uh, that people are talking about around that, you know, always bringing up Ron Barassi and Norm Smith and Gary Lyon and Bobby Flower and stuff. Yeah, and 54 to do with that, exactly. And it's, it's just huge. It's just um, it's massive. Like we were saying, we were saying before the the fact that 
last time, you know, last time we made a grand final 20, 21 years ago <laughs> was um, it was almost a foregone conclusion that it wasn't ours to have, you know, to win at that time. Whereas this time, at least we're going in with, with some expectation. We're going in feeling confident. And after those, after those two games on the weekend, that was just some of the most, yeah, ridiculous football I've seen in a while. And seeing that in prelim finals is just unbelievable. Is there, and there's a bit of symmetry in it as well. I mean, you talk about the Norm Smith, the red, curse of the Red Fox, but he's like that whole era of Melbourne was kicked off by playing a grand final against the Bulldogs. So maybe this is a new era. That's it. Exactly. It's kicking off with the yeah, F, I mean, 54, and then it all, it all started from scratch. And you look at, well, I mean, the, the great thing is, like, if this was any other year and it wasn't us, you'd be backing the Bulldogs 100%. Simon Goodwin says, you know, we stick to our processes and uh, everyone plays their role. And, um, you know, it, it's sort of like it can get you excited and interested and hope, a little bit hopeful, but at our place, the lid's off. We, we think we're going to win the grand final. <laughs> it's just unbelievably exciting. It's so, it's so good to see... Um, see a bit of pride and passion in the club around the club again and but also not this feeling of like we've we're kind of sneaking it in and we're doing something you know it's not sort of flash in the pan type stuff it's just set up and 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 just exciting and the fact that we now get to enjoy it for two weeks is incredible <laughs> can i also say i was thinking about this uh yesterday about you know listening to a lot of the commentary around a lot of the games and how much they bring up, you know, past instances, and this hasn't happened since then, and this hasn't happened since then, and yeah. you know, last time, last time Melbourne went a flag, and they showed all these things, you know, uh, Tokyo would happen, and blah blah blah. Yeah, and it just got me thinking about, you know, what we what we're trying to do here, and 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 the, all the history of the game, and how much, mm. how much more uh, weight, more gravitas it puts on, on everything that happens in our game today because we've got that weight of history behind us. If, you know, understanding where this game has come from and Mm. what we're doing now means so much more because of all of these people who've made the game what it is. And like, Mm. you know, looking at these, looking at these past legends and everyone's been talking about uh, Ronald Dale Barassi in (laughs) in this time and Robbie Flower and these guys and, um, and how much it, it, it means based with that weight of history. So it just sort of really reminded me of why we started doing this podcast in the first place and why it's so great that we're still doing it. Yeah, nice one. I like nice. it. Well said. Keeps getting better. Now, before we um, before we get stuck into it, I just want to say hello to listeners in the Czech Republic, Vietnam, Croatia, Poland, just some of the 14 different countries that have downloaded us in the last month. Nice. Uh, they're my people there at the Czech Republic. Are they? Buy all the slabs. <laughs> I'm imagining there's going to be a huge um, uptake of this episode in the Bayside area of Melbourne. I'm assuming that, yeah, yeah. we'll get a fair bit. <laughs> nice. Um, so just some history, Charlie. So I'll get you a song first. Oh, please. And we're really in a good era now. So obviously we've got the Beatles hit, tuning out hits. Um, among the other hits of 65 were Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. Oh, all time fave. Paint it black, throwing stones. Um, but I've gone with an Australian one for a song of the year, uh, Friday on My Mind by the Easy Beats. Oh, so good. Num- number one in Australia for a few weeks in 60. Fantastic. 
oh, geez. Yeah. We, it, we really, uh, we've gone from rags to riches when it comes to picking the song of the year, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There's some good ones. Uh, so are you ready for some history? Always. Please. A fair bit happened in 66. It was a good year. It was a good year. So starting on the 20th of January, we had um, the Liberal Party in Australia um, holding a leadership election because Robert Menzies retired after an unprecedented 16 years in office. So after that, they had a bit of a, a internal leadership spill in the Liberal Party. Harold Holt was elected, becoming Prime Minister of Australia six days later. Ah, so it all went swimmingly. <laughs> yeah, I see what you did there. And uh, only a few days later, on Valentine's Day, February 14th, the Australian dollar was introduced at a rate of uh, $2 per pound. Hold on. 10, sh- 10 shillings per dollar. So it didn't, like, I, I assumed it just would have started January 1st. It didn't start till February. It didn't start till Valentine's Day. That's right, yeah. yeah. Okay. Give people time to get rid of their, their pounds, I guess. I don't know. Okay, yes. Uh, on the 4th of March, uh, in classic interview with the London Evening Standard, we had John Lennon of the Beatles stating that they're more popular than Jesus now. <laughs> <laughs> Went down. Apparently, went down really well. He uh, he issued a retraction later <laughs> later in the year. <laughs> um, on the seventh of April, New South Wales repe- repealed the Sunday Observance Act, which allowed theatres and cinemas to open on Sundays, sporting events to charge admission on Sundays, and clubs were allowed to sell alcohol now on Sundays. So the world's really mm-hmm. opening up up in New South Wales. Let the fun begin. Yeah, yeah. Sunday, the beginning of the Sunday session. <laughs> um, on the 18th of April, we had the, 13, the 38th Academy Awards held in Santa Monica in California. Uh, best picture was won by, any guesses, in 66? Sound of Music? Well done. The nail I on know the my head Sound there. of Music. Sound of Music won Best Picture. On the 5th of May, uh, we had the Stanley Cup. And it was the uh, Montreal Canadiens defeating the Detroit Red Wings to win that one. On the 28th of May, we had Fidel Castro declaring martial law in Cuba because of a possible US attack. In Australia, uh, we had General Motors, Holden becoming the first local car manufacturer to install seatbelts as standard equipment in all its new vehicles as of 66. Yeah, nice. Well done. On the 30th of July, we had the 1966 FIFA World Cup final at Wembley, uh, which England, in which England beat West Germany 4-2 um, after extra time. Still, the English are dining out on that one. Yeah, they. This long later, but yeah. yeah. Um, on the 18th of August, we had Australian forces engaging in their first major battle in Vietnam with the Battle of Long Tan. Ooh, yep. On the, which, yeah, uh, military buffs will know all about, military historians. On the 23rd of August, we had 200 Gurundji people walk off Wave Hill Station in the Northern Territory to protest low wages and poor conditions. Little things, big things grow. That's right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the 1st of November, we had the NFL um, awarding its 16th franchise to the city of New Orleans. Uh, 
being the New Orleans Saints, just a little baby team there, you know? They're they're barely out of nappies. The Saints in 66. Hmm. All the signs are there. Yes. (laughs) On the 8th of November, we had actor Ronald Reagan being elected governor of California. (laughs) We all know where that ends up. And on the 26th of November, we had the Australian federal election where Harold Holt, after taking over as leader, won an election himself with a significantly increased majority, defeating the Labor Party led by Arthur Caldwell. Um, So that is what now 20 years in the bag of Liberal leadership in Australia. Yeah, wow. On the 27th of November, we had the Redskins defeating the Giants 72 to 41 in the highest scoring game in NFL history. I believe that's still up to this point. What was the score? Uh, yeah, massive, 72 to 41. Um, we had Galilee winning the Melbourne Cup. And then in late November, the this is a, a classic, we had the to- Toyota Corolla first introduced to the world. Wow. Oh. And to finish with, December 15th, Walt Disney passed away while producing The Jungle Book. Isn't it the last he... animated feature under his personal supervision? I thought he was frozen. That's right. We're just waiting for him to come back. Yeah. I don't think I think he'd wake up and see the live action remakes of everything that's been going on so far and just ask to be frozen again. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, do you want to hear about people who were born in 1966? I do. Of course. I decided I decided that as we've said, too many people are being born these days. It's too hard to go through a list. So I picked one person. Oh, wow. Okay. One very important person to AFL, an Australian legendary icon. On the 9th of March, Tony Lockett was born. So there you go. Another I song. thought I'd keep it, keep it short and sweet for that one. Yeah. All right, so some league news. Here we go. Because it's football season. Um, yes. The rules of the game were altered at the behest of the Australian National Football Council to ban the uh, the flick pass. Ah. With the rule now stating you have to have a clenched fist. Mm. Wait, the Australian National Football yeah. Council? What? How much administration do we need? No wonder people used to complain about it. But they, <laughs> this is the, like this is what the AFL are now. The, the ANFC oh, controlled the rules across all states. That's, that's right. That's so, that's, so that's the end of it. It's dead and buried now. Dead and buried. Yep. Good. Um, it's not going to rise again. Yeah. Oh, Carly Nolder's bringing it back there. Um, Bob Nunn, the umpire advisor, says umpires have been instructed to cut ball ups, penalise the flick pass, and give frees when scrimmages are developed to get the ball, the game flowing quicker. Uh-huh. Um, oh, speaking yeah. of umpires Great. as well, Charlie, their wage has gone up from thirty-eight dollars a game. Now that we've got decimal currency that you you just told us about, thirty-eight dollars a game to forty-four dollars a game. And the NFL will Ooh. also pay $6 a week for their trainers. I, I, I'm thinking that means shoes. Oh. Every TV station will now show a portion of two matches on the on Saturdays at the same time. A portion. So we're still not playing Minis. a full game on TV. No, but you can change, like, Channel 7 would have some, Channel 10 would have some, the ABC would have some. So you can, you can basically watch any part of a different game. So kind of like what we have now. Yeah, okay, nice. Just a smaller version of it. Um, and some exciting news. Um, there was a state carnival in '66, and back to talk about it, we've got Big Red. Hey, Red. fantastic! 
G'day Kick Team, Big Red here for your Australian National Football Carnival wrap for the 1966 season. The 1966 Carnival was known as the Hobart Carnival, so as to held by the Tasmanian city. It had been five years since the previous Carnival and in that time it had given some really good players time to marinate into near legends. In the 1966 Hobart Carnival, the likes of Ian Stewart, Kevin Murray, John Nichols, Daryl Bulldock, Ted Whitten and Barry Cable are all at the height of their powers and a young Peter Hudson is about to step onto the scene. On day one of the carnival, Western Australia, led by captain coach Kevin Murray and the VFL, captained by Essendon Premiership captain Ken Fraser, dominate their opening matches over the VFA and Tasmania respectively, making a strong statement on the matches to come. On day two, the VFL were again dominant, with Tasmania also winning games against South Australia and the VFA. It's the VFA side this year in the carnival that didn't seem to have the same level of class as some of their other opponents. By day five of the carnival, the two undefeated sides, the VFL and Western Australia, finally meet in a match that decides who will finish on the top for the carnival. The two star-studded teams were nearly inseparable at every break, and after trailing at the final change, the VFL side surprised WA with a five-goal to two final quarter to win the game by 15 points. Barry Cable of the Western Australian team, currently at Perth Football Club in 1966, won the Tassie medal as the Carnival's best player. The VFL's John Gould, a Carlton football player at the time, came second in the medal by just two votes. Tasmania's Peter Hudson, currently at New Norfolk Football Club, kicked a carnival-leading 20 goals, and it was that summer that Hudson is recruited to the Hawthorne Football Club, and the rest is, as you say, history. The Australian National Football Carnival was also how the All-Australian team was selected each year, and for the 1966 Hobart Carnival, let's just say the 20-man squad would have made any proud football lover had them salivating. What a tremendous list. So I implore you to go check it out. And with that, that's your 1966 Hobart Carnival wrap. Until next time, kick straight. Okay, people, in 12th place, Fitzroy with one win, 17 losses. And a percentage of 53.8. That's not good. In 66, Fitzroy, uh, captained by Ralph Rogerson and coached by Bill Steven. Uh, tell us about Fitzroy in 66. All right, well, here's some debutants for you. I'm just going to put them in the chat there. We've got Russell Cromarty, Bernie Drury, Kingsley Ellis, Trevor McGrath, Sess Reinberger, Alex Ruskalich, and Vern Drake. Good names. Strong names. Some, some great names. Um, but as you said, Kaz, it's a pretty disappointing season. They had 18, year, 18 first-year players were tried. But it was a really bleak start to the season with very few highlights. Um, round five, their captain, Roger Ralph Rogerson, was injured in a loss to Essendon, which ended his VFL career, uh, with John yeah. Hayes taking over the leadership on the field. There you go. Um, round nine was the worst of the drubbings, handed out by the Cats, which we'll talk about when we get to the Cats. Uh, round 11, Gary Lazarus kicked seven goals in a loss to North, which was his biggest haul of the season. Round 15 was their only win for the season. They let it all changes, but in the final quarter, the lead changed eight times. It was John Bahern who kicked the winning goal, his fourth. Um, and Lions won by goal against Footscray. There you go. So you've seen John, John Bahern kick the winning goal there. 
He only kicked five goals for the season. So uh, the important one when it mattered. So he kicked, he kicked four in that game. Amazing. <laughs> uh, in round 17, Fitzroy hosted its 609th and last senior VFL match at Brunswick Street Oval, taking on the Saints. A good crowd of more than 12,000 people made the trip to Brunswick Street Oval for the last time, and the Lions took it up to the Saints and led by 11 points at the first break, but ultimately couldn't hold on. So one would think this is in the whole story of them finally leaving. So do they say why? Uh, yeah, I'll get to that in a sec. Here's some stats leaders for the Lions as well for the season. John Haynes led the overall disposal count, including 266 kicks. Norm Brown had 81 handballs and 94 marks to lead the handballs and marks. Massive. Um, so in the off-season, the Fitzroy Council offered the lot. So, sorry, I'll, and I'll preface that. Round 17, they didn't realise they were going to... They didn't know they were leaving. They were looking for a better deal, but they didn't know they would be leaving. Mm. They didn't know that was going to be the last game. They, would, they wanted to stay, but wanted a better deal out of the ground. Yeah, so in the off-season, mm. the Fitzroy Council had offered the Lions a 21-year lease. The Lions wanted longer. They also wanted money to redevelop the tired old grandstand. I mean, mm-hmm. remember, when, remember when they had the best facilities in the in the league back in the yeah. early 1900s? Yeah. yeah, exactly, in the 1910s. So it's amazing how things fall apart after 50 years. It is. Um, so they were inspired by the moves of Richmond and Kilda. They looked to shift their home ground, saying they could not go on living with without the first-class facilities for both players and fans. They considered moves to Preston, Junction Oval, and Princess Park. Um, and ultimately, they would shift to Princess Park. So that's interesting. They're, they're talking about getting better facilities, and one of the moves they considered is moving to the place that St Kilda decided wasn't good enough for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that was that was Fitzroy's season. Uh, Charlie, who do you reckon led their goal kicking? I'm going to say Gary Lazarus. Had to be Lazarus rose again with 39 <laughs> this year. Yep. And uh, best and fairest winner in 66 was uh, Norm Brown, again, after last year as well. In 11th place, lowly Melbourne with three wins and 15 losses. Percentage of 78.2. This is uncharacteristic. Straight down to the bottom of the ladder. This is where the seesawing starts. Yes. So coached again by Norm Smith this year, captained by the great Hasserman. Ah, a bit, yeah. We're 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 starting in the doldrums, guys. We better get used to talking about Melbourne early in the podcast again. <laughs> but some some debutants include Gary Wind or Wine W Y N D, Ken Jungwith, John Quirk, and Peter Smith, son of Norm. Yes. Uh, so speaking before the season, Norm Smith said, "Our morale fell to an all-time low last year, but there is no use crying over spilt milk." Discipline must be maintained. This year, I'm going to be hard on the players, but fair. I want respect above all. There's been lots of criticism about my coaching methods. My only desire is to get the best out of the players. Firstly for the club, then the player, and if anything is left over, for myself. (laughs) Um, Also, Chairman Donald Duffy came out and said Norm Smith's sacking was a thing of the past, and they'd moved forward. Um, But the Ds lost their first six games. Um, Worryingly, in their first two games, they kicked four goals and three goals for the entire match. Um, One highlight was round three when Norm Smith's son, Peter, uh, debuted Mm -hmm. to Richmond. And from what I've read, Charlie, it's much like Jock McHale's son playing as well, just super high expectations. Yeah. Not wanting to show any favouritism at all. Harder on harder on him than in, in anyone else, and we know how hard he was on everyone. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so they they lost their first six, but then round seven, taking on the reigning premiers Essendon, it all came together. So look, the Bombers led by five points the first break, but the second term belonged to Barry Vag, who kicked three goals to go with the two he'd already snagged in the first quarter. The Demons opened up a 19-point lead at the long break, then led by 20 points at the last break. The Bombers were expected to strike back, um, but went under to a determined Demon side who won back a little bit of respect, just a little bit. I think we all know what's going to happen with them. Even the players probably knew it. Uh, round 10, the Dees picked on the Lions, beating them by 58 points in a very one-sided game, their second win of the season. And their third and final win of the season came in round 13 against the Hawks. Second gamer Graham Osborne became the 10th man in 13 weeks to play at the seemingly cursed full forward position. While Osborne was a con- contributor with two goals, it was Ed Burston who did the damage with six, the most by any Demons player since 1961. Also boosted by the return of Brian Dixon, the Demons powered to a huge confidence-building win. The two teams had battled manfully in the first half with the two defences dominating, but 16 goals to five after halftime set up a nice big victory for the Demons. But, I mean, boys, that's all I've got. It's pretty, it's pretty disappointing. Yeah, but, you know. There's nothing... You you were sorry, Charlie. You, you're talking about the superstition of the the full the full forward part there. I mean, like the collie wobbles, you know. I hate that. It's the worst yeah. feeling. <laughs> so thankfully, we don't have anything like that. Because of the full forward, I would, I would totally believe that. I would... It would hurt. The other weird thing I found reading reading this out is I don't know any of these names. No, All no. Demons, well, that it's interesting, and I'm gonna yeah. They've so been so familiar to us for the last ten years. Well, that's it. And then you look at you know the guy. The only ones you do know are the 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 elder statesman. Yeah, ha- well, Brian yeah. Dixon sort of you know basically yeah. run out of puff. Has yeah. a man is holding you know holding it all together barely. And then, you know, you look at the guys who were, yeah, you're absolutely right. The rest of the names are uh, um, pretty unheard of. And that goes to show in who I'm about to talk about. Our leading goal kicker is Barry Vag with 20. And best and fairest winner was Terry, uh, Terry Lee, who was also our best first year player. He was a, he was a debutant in round one of this year. Um, and interestingly enough, yeah, so it was his first year. He's still now, um, I believe, or and I don't think it's been taken over, but still now holds the record of the youngest, best and fairest winner in club history. He was 19 years and 354 days old when he took out the, took it out. Yeah. And then only managed to play eight games the next year. Oh. So it's not not looking great for the D's. Poor old D's. Okay, so finishing 10th was Footscray. They had four wins and 14 losses, a percentage of 68.9. That's pretty bad. (laughs) That's not great, is it? (laughs) Not the worst, but not great. (laughs) So Footscray this year, captain coached again by Ted Whitten. Nice. Um, all right. So some debutants for you. We've got Kevin Delmenico. Delmenico, I think. Gary Merrington. Laurie Sanderlands. Ricky Spargo, the great uncle of Charlie. Ah, the and, first uh, of, the, of the four generations of Spargos. Um, so some uh, some news. Firstly, the old cowshed pavilion was pulled down and replaced by seven tiers of concrete terracing. So more people can come and less dangerous. And Charlie Sutton was appointed chairman of the match committee. 
So he's back nice. after being fired as the coach seasons ago. Um, now, their first win wasn't till round four against Fitzroy. They kept the line scoreless in the opening quarter, then allowed to add only one goal in the next two quarters. The Dogs running out 38-point winners. Ooh. They repeated this the following week against the Hawks, allowing only one behind in the first quarter. Um, and then Doug Pryor kicked five goals, which was actually more than the whole Hawks team combined, as the Dogs won by six goals. Round eight, the Dogs played the Demons in a very scrappy game. In the first quarter, they saw the Dogs go into their huddle scoreless and three goals behind. Second term was a different story, though, and when they had their chances with the win, the Dogs kicked five goals and restricted Melbourne to two points. Then the scoring dried up. So we're, we're dealing with a very heavy wind here at this game. So the, uh, the Dogs scoring tried, dried up and the Demons got on top and the Dogs trailed by 16. But then in the last quarter, the Dogs kicked six goals and held the Demons goalless. Um, one of their last quarter goals summed up the farcical nature of the day. Footscray's David Thorpe thumped the Spectacular kick inside 50 from beyond the half-forward flank, but carried by a strong wind, it evaded four players and trickled through for a goal despite a desperate lunge and a protest from Tassie Johnson saying he touched it. Uh, so this is one no of those... score cla- review. No. And this is one of those classic games where all goals were scored to the same end. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Uh, nice. Love that. It just doesn't happen anymore, not unless you're playing at Munstone. Uh, round 10 was their fourth and final win of the season. The doggies squandering opportunities, kicking eight goals, 19, but run out two goal winners. Um, Kevin Jackman with four for the winners in round 10, which was against South Melbourne. Um, but the end of the season, the Pies beat them by over 100 points and the committee decided to replace Mr. Football as coach. So tune in to 67 to find out what happens there. Yes. Mm-hmm. But here's a few stat leaders for you, just to... Just to finish off the season, Don McKenzie led the kicks, 269 kicks. John Schultz with 113 marks. Uh, he also had 384 hitouts, and George Bissett with 56 handballs. Um, so, do you want to hear who kicked the most goal? Who do we think kicked the most goals for the doggies this year? Oh, David Thorpe. No, it's Kevin Jackman with 28. Ah, yes, those double goals. the second closest. Doug Pryor with 14. Okay, and the best. Best and fairest winner, the Charles Sutton Medal Award winner, which yep. I'm assuming probably wasn't called the Charles Sutton Medal at this time, um, in 66 was? Doug Pryor. No, it was Johnny Schultz for the... Uh, of course. One, two, fifth time overall and third time in a row. Okay. All right. Next up the ladder, finishing ninth was Hawthorne. They had five wins, 13 losses, and 74.2%. So the Hawks this year, coached by Peter O'Donoghue and captained by Graham Arthur. All right. Uh, one really big debutant is a player by the name of Peter Crimmins. Oh, yes. Um, Kaz is going to tell us a little bit about him. Okay, Peter Crimmins. John Kennedy said this. I sort of thought he wasn't match fit. In fact, I knew he wasn't match fit. But I just had a hunch that his presence on the field might do something for the team. But I had didn't have the guts to follow my hunch through. The stakes, to put it mildly, were pretty high. John Kennedy on the decision to leave Peter Crimmins out of the 1975 Grand Final. And his history, um, described as a brilliant and courageous rover, Crimmins died of cancer just days after Hawthorne had won the 1976 Grand Final. Crimmins recruited from Assumption College, Kilmore had been Hawthorne captain 
from 1974, but had to rel- relinquish the position because of illness. So that's a little bit about Peter Crimmins. And I'm currently reading through the, uh, the Crimo book written by Dan Eddy, which is quite an interesting read so far. I bet. Um, so Peter Donahue, new coach, came in um, and he was uh, he despised showiness. So he really made it his objective to improve the players' skills. Um, and he figured the Hawks knew how to get the pill, but they didn't really know how to use it. So he really focused on skills early on. So in- interesting there with, with him taking over from Graham Arthur as coach, but Arthur still sticking around as captain. Did he, yeah. Did they, was there anything about that? Did he not want, want the gig as coach anymore or just was, was he coaching wanting 65? to focus on field? He was coaching 65, wasn't he? Yes, 64 and 65, yeah. Yeah, and that, uh, it's an interesting one. I, I don't know the answer at the moment because he had retired. Like, he didn't want to play in 65 and then was talked out of – talked into coming back on the field. So, so maybe, maybe that – just maybe wanted that to focus it, on yeah. one thing and not both. Um, so, round one, we've got Peter Crimmins making his debut at the age of 17, and he was he was a stick. He was – you look at photos of him, he's just skinny, skinny little blonde boy playing against <laughs> him, but he had the skills. Um, although the Magpies got got the better of them, beating them by 53 points. They rebounded and they beat the Demons in round two by 27, keeping Melbourne to three goals 11 in the bog at Glen Ferry. Um, but the season looked gone when the Hawks lost their next five games. Before consecutive wins over Wooden Spooners, Fitzroy by 19, which, uh, which saw Crimmins as best on ground. Then they beat Carlton by four points after a four goal to two last quarter gave the side some hope. However, then they went on another five-game losing streak, including losses to Geelong, Collingwood, and Melbourne um, by massive scores, 60, 73, and 92. Uh, so, yeah, things not looking good at Hawthorne. In round 15, the Hawks and the Roos played a seesawing game, and when Frank Good kicked the Roos' 11th goal, uh, it all seemed over. But in the final seconds, Morton Brown took a mark 45 yards out in the boundary line. He went back and cool as a cucumber, slotted the winning goal, to see the Hawks home by a point. Nice. They followed this up with a good win at Glen Ferry Oval, beating Footscray by 52 points. Morton Brown kicking four to lead the scoring. And Peter Crimmins having a pretty good day out with 20 disposals, three goals, two hitouts. This is also Graham Arthur's 200th game. In round 17 against the top four side, Essendon at Glen Ferry, Hawthorne pushed the Bombers all the way to the extent that Essendon coach John Coleman was reported by the boundary umpire for abuse. Again. Oh, what? <laughs> That's so unlike him. Yeah. Uh, Bombers eventually won by 21 points. In the last round against St Kilda at Moorabbin, the Hawks were on top for a lot of this game. Um, but in the third quarter, the fans started chanting for Bulldog. We'll find out more about this when we get to St Kilda. Um, but we know Hawthorne lost this game ultimately, but David Parkin would go on to describe this game as one of the most dramatic moments of his playing days. Okay, interesting. No, the, bo- the bottom part of the ladder is... Uh... Not that interesting this year, is it? No. There's not a lot going on. Um, so, leading goal kicker for Hawks, anyone want to have a punt at who that might have been? Um, Mort Brown? Yeah, John. Uh, he was second. It was John Peck okay. with 32. Mort, Mort Brown kicked 22. And best and fairest, or the Peter Crimmins medal winner, again, probably not named that at this stage. I'm no. David <laughs> Parkin? He won it last year. See, not far off. It was Ray Wilson in 66. Of course. So there you go. All right. So South Melbourne finished eighth this season. They had seven wins, 11 losses, 
and 98.7%. So a bit of a jump up from Hawthorne. Yes, yeah, and uh, so again, this year's South captain coached by Bobby Skilton. Who else but the great man? Uh, although things are going to be changing down. Yeah, things are pretty rocky down in South Melbourne, and might be changing reasonably shortly. Stay tuned for sixty-seven. <laughs> Woohoo! Um, so some debutants. We've got John Sadults, Austin Robertson Jr., son of a South Melbourne legend. There, uh, Clive Pasquil and Russell Cook. Um, they signed 10 interstate players for 66. So they just... Well, the Foreign really, Legion's back. They're just really trying to grasp at that Foreign Legion title, aren't they? Worked once. Yeah. Worked once for them. They keep going back to it. Um, look, round one, things look really promising as well. The Swans beat the Lions by 53. Um, two of their debutants in Sadults and Robertson kicked three goals each, um, both obviously outshined by Bobby Skilton, who kicked four. Um, and they took on the... They, they looked impressive against the Cats at Cardinia, despite losing by 20 points. But Austin Robertson Jr. kicked six goals this time, so he was having a, having an absolute ripper. Um, but then round three and four were big wins over Hawthorne and the Demons. And so the Swans were third on the ladder early on. Um, the Saints upset the apple cart in round five. It was all downhill from there. Bob Skilton was kicked in the hand, meaning he broke a bone and he missed the next Oof. five games. Although in this game, he still managed 28 disposals. With a broken hand. Yes. Yes, sir. Unbelievable. Uh, round seven, they beat North Melbourne. Austin Robertson kicking six goals, four, and Stuart McGee leading possessions in a two-goal win. Round 12, the Swans had to come from behind to beat the Lions, thanks mostly to a returning Bobby Skilton, who had 38 possessions, seven marks, three goals, and was easily the most dominant player on the ground. Um, a close round 14 game against Hawthorne had the Swans down by five points at three-quarter time, but they slammed on six goals to two to run out 25 points winner. 25-point winners, Max Papley with five goals, three there. Round 15 was another win over the Demons. Robertson with six goals, two, who was, again, dominant. And this was their final win of the season. Um, they finished off with three losses. And at the end of the season, as you sort of signaled, signaled Charlie, uh, Bob Skilton resigned as coach in the belief that he could do more for the club by continuing to lead the players on the field. Yeah, focusing on on the on field stuff there. Yeah. yeah, so and I think there were a couple of things that that made him feel that way. And obviously, he's getting getting a little bit older now as well, right? So, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so leading goal kicker for South. Oh, it has to be Austin Robertson Jr. <laughs> it absolutely was with sixty goals for the season. Yeah. Second second on that list was Bobby Skilton with eighteen. So he was definitely the the one to go for inside fifty there. And um, the winner of the Bobby Skilton medal, probably not named that at this stage either. <laughs> Skilton? <laughs> That's Skilton three in a row. I love it. So who do you reckon it was? It's not Skilton? It's not Skilton. For the first time in a few years, it was Max Papley. Ah, so nice. Skilton's won the last five and he'll go on to win a couple more, but Papley's just snuck it in. Probably because of the broken hand, I imagine, and missing five games. Yeah, it doesn't help. Wow. Definitely doesn't. No. All right. So finishing in seventh position this season was North Melbourne. They had seven wins, ten losses, and one draw. Mm. And 93.7%. Perfect. So North Melbourne this year, coached by Alan Killigrew and captained by Noel Teasdale. Noel Teasdale in his second year of captaincy there. Indeed. Um, now, if you remember last season, Charlie, North Melbourne had moved to Coburg. Yes, yeah. Um, but after a season there and a very poor season as well, they weren't happy. 
the majority of North fans wanted them to shift back to North Melbourne, um, while the Coburg VFA club was also trying to push them out because they wanted to come back in. Uh, <laughs> but the Kangaroos had signed a seven-year lease, and they kind of came to an arrangement with the council because they none of them really wanted to be there. Um, so they sat down with the council to overcome all these contractual obligations. And get them out of there. And got them out. The next decision was where to go. Yeah, of course. Most wanted Arden Street because um, that was their spiritual home, but it needed improving. Junction Oval was a real possibility. It was shot down by the majority. Um, That's right, because we talked about that last that last year as that being sort of the number one spot, right? Yeah, well, Fitzroy had spoken about that as well. Well, Fitzroy, sorry. Yeah. I'm jumping ahead of myself, but Fitzroy <laughs> talking about moving there as well. Yeah. Um, but in the end, they did return to Arden Street on satisfactory terms with the local council. This saw them eventually down the road become ground managers and have their own social club. So it was the right decision. And so that was re- that was the reason that they'd left um, was because the cricket the cricket club had all the power, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that they're able to go back there with better terms for the football club is a huge win. They almost sort of. Um, bluffed their way into that. And luckily, Coburg didn't hold them to that seven-year lease. Well, because they wanted their own team back. They didn't want... I think Coburg were playing out of Williamstown or something something like that. really? Yeah. So it's kind of robbing Peter to pay pay Paul, thought that maybe having a VFL team was better than a VFA team and then realised that they were losing the locals. Yeah. Mm, interesting. So, um, round one, they took on the Dogs at, w- at Western Oval. It was a good start to the season. Ruse out of the blocks early and led all day. Uh, they were stood a last quarter comeback, but they were able to win that game by 12 points. Um, round four, they got off to another great start against the Hawks to lead by over five goals at quarter time. Frank Gordian was leading the way in the midfield, while Frank Good led the Ruse to a 32-point win with his four goals. Round eight, they kicked off a good stretch of games. Uh, this one was actually a thrilling draw against Richmond, which was extra spicy because um, because of the Tigers' signing of Dick Clay, which hopefully Kaz will explain a little bit later. Oh, yeah. It was a close game throughout, although North was plagued by inaccurate kicking. Scores were tied at three-quarter time, and then each team had chances to win the game in the last quarter. But with six minutes remaining, the scores were tied again, and neither team could break through. Um, in this game, North Melbourne kicked eight goals, 23, so really should have won it. Um, on the bright side for North Melbourne, though, there's that one of their players, Peter Stewart, eclipsed North Melbourne, uh, Richmond's Dick Clay. So they would have been happy getting one up on him. Oh, yeah, okay. So eight goals, 23. That is ridiculous. Yeah. That's a very, very poor kicking to Richmond's Isn't 10 it? goals, 11. Yeah, God, that's a killer. Yeah. Um, then what do we got? They took charge against the Demons, uh, holding them to one goal across three quarters, I hate to tell you. Uh, taking charge themselves in the third, adding six goals, five to win it, win by 29 points. So gone are the days where the Demons just dominate the Kangaroos. Yeah, gone are the days where the Demons seem to dominate anyone, unfortunately. Um, then they almost kicked themselves out of the match against the Blues. They trailed at three-quarter time, having kicked four goals, 14 for this match. Oh, my God. Uh, but they kicked four goals, three in the last quarter, saw, saw them win by 23 points. Teasdale leading the way with 32 disposals. In round 11, they finally bought their kicking boots. They kicked 22 goals, eight. Which was uh, Okay, that's what enough. we want to see. That's a that's better. Had the turn. Uh, enough to sink the Lions by 73 points. Frank Good with five goals straight. 
Uh, a round 12 win over the Dogs by 33 was again punctuated by poor kicking. Um, in that game, they kicked 10 goals, 15. What is going like, yeah. on? You can get away with that. That's okay. But, I, you know, they, these other schools are ridiculous. Mm. Uh, but they put together a good run of form without a loss in the last five games. But then they would lose their next five games and only winning their final game against South to finish, uh, finish the season. Um, not where they probably wanted to, but happy to be back at Arden Street. Yeah. Yep. Mm. So who do you reckon uh, was their leading goal kicker for their season? Frank Good. It was Frank Good with 49. Yeah. So not bad. 49-18. He was actually pretty bloody, uh, pretty, pretty bloody accurate in front of goal. And best and fairest, maybe Teasdale. It was Teasdale. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well done. Good picks. Thank you. Thank you. In sixth position was Carlton. They had 10 wins, eight losses, and a percentage of 107.9. So the Blues, they're sitting sixth, as, as we said, uh, captain coached by a name I hate to say uh, associated with any other team, but it is Ronald Dale Barassi as captain coach down at the Blues now, unfortunately. All right. Um, now, Charlie, I want to start this off with some debutantes, and then I've got a poem with our listeners. Um, so, debutantes to start with, we've got Vin Waite, who is the father of Jared Waite. Oh, okay. And then um, we've also got a player by the name of Percy Jones, another big name player, which Kaz might tell us a little bit about. No individual has ever been more aptly suited by the description, one of the game's characters. Um, as Peter Percy Jones moved from Tasmania in 1966 and, and his career almost never got off the ground. He injured both legs in a car accident and did not make his senior debut until the, th- the third last game. In 1973, he'd won Carlton's Best and Ferrets. Best and Ferrets. His clapping and enthusiasm became legendary, um, as did his off-field reputation as a practical joker. He once landed in hot water when he caught a tram during pre-season jog and on another occasion, let off a cracker in the Carlton Social Club during a game. (laughs) The cracker incident could have been disastrous as Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser's bodyguard uh, reached inside his jacket for a gun to swat the perceived assassin. Do you want to hear this poem? Of course I do. About Carlton, Carlton Football Club in 1966. It's uh, called Will Be Premiers You Bet by Heather Gridley, age 16. Don't we love this? Mm-hmm. Right. So, Serge Silvani is the Blues Ruck Rover. He never stops trying till the match is over. Though now he's in the veteran stage, his ability isn't marred by age. <laughs> For John Nichols, no introductions required. His great skill and strength must be admired. He's very fair and his strength he'll use whenever he's needed to bolster the Blues. Two handy second ruckmen are Hall and Greenwood, second only to Nichols at throw-ins, they're good. <laughs> Thomas, Jones and Waite in the future will be most worthy replacements for the last mentioned three. Combin played all crane and our plucky Cliff Stewart. If wingman's work's to be done, these four who will do it. Fowler, Constance, Morrison, Gordon and Curvis pushing top row the Gallagher, no wonder he's nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Then comes Mr. Elegance, alias John Gould. Other backmen couldn't match him if their talents they pooled. Back by Gilbert and the Gills, John and Barry, namely, here's a great backline which makes Fords play tamely. 
fullback Wes Lofts, Kemp Anderson and Lloyd, more stalwarts defenders by the Carlton by Carlton employed. Tenacious Ian Collins throughout every game, steadily and surely top sentiment will tame. A versatile player is our Ron Stone, defence ruck or half forward, he stands alone. Bennett, Orchetti, Robertson and Ricky McLean are sure to rank as great forwards with the best there has been. Brian Quirk as a flanker is unsurpassed, though this year was not quite as good as his last. With plenty of time to go down in record books, his potential is equaled only by his good looks. 36 is McLean, a skillful ruck rover, like the look of the blues and from Melbourne came over. As opponents have tried to beat him in vain, Pete's proved Melbourne's loss is Carlton's game. No, I haven't forgotten our great captain coach, as the Mr. Football, none can him approach. Ronald Dale Barassi's his celebrated name, Guernsey 31, he's won nationwide fame. Now he's a legend, but he'll have more honours yet. With this Dynamo as our leader, we'll be premiers, you bet. <laughs> Classic. I love it. Um, my, literally fitted in every name in the Carlton team into a poem. It's like my, that premiers, premiers, premiers one. Oh, it is, isn't it? My favourite when she rhymes <laughs> Nankervis with Nervous. Yeah, so good. <laughs> Um, and that can be found on the Blue Zeon website as well. So the whole bunch yes. of there I've only just discovered. So we've uh, you know maybe we have to go re-record every single episode again and find all the old ones. I love yeah. it. Uh, so uh, it took the Blues until round three to win their first game when they uh, actually played their final game at Brunswick Street Oval against the Lions. It was Ron Barassi leading from the front with thirty-three disposals there. Of course it was. And they made it two in a row, thrashing the Bombers by ten goals at Princes Park. Uh, and celebrated legend John Nichols' 150th match in style, Billy Bennett kicking four. Round five against Melbourne saw Vin Waite score two goals with his first two kicks in league football, both within a minute of each other in the first five minutes of the game. Uh, it was the first time in 13 seasons that the Blues had won a game on the hallowed turf of the MCG, and the first win Ron had had over his old team. Blues by 47. Hey, wow. Yeah. They then beat the Dogs by 33 at Princess Park, Captain Ron Barassi with four goals. Then after a one-point loss to the Cats, they were on the right side of a close game finally with a three-point win over the Swans. Vin Waite kicked two important goals as the Blues held on. In this game against the Swannies, Eric Sarich crunched Ron Barassi in a marking contest. Barassi limped off with his arm hanging low and he didn't play again in 66. Oh, God. Then it was another close loss. Four, four points to the Hawks. Uh, round 11, they halted their slide of two straight losses and scored one of their best wins of the season with a shock victory over ladder leaders Collingwood. Led by a dominant, the dominant ruck work of John Nichols, the Blues stayed in front all day and revived their flagging hopes of making the finals. Then they were embarrassed by the Tigers in round 12. Their score of four goals, 6-30, was their lowest score against Richmond for 39 years. Um, so in that game, they'd actually defeated Richmond... <laughs> 4-6-30 to 3-5-23 at uh, Prinny Park in 1927. So. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, so the wheels are really really falling off after uh, Barass can't play anymore, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, then they proved they could match it with the best by beating the Saints by 17. Although they had seven more scoring shots, Nichols and Cliff Stewart were the best players. Round 14 against Fitzroy, there was a once-off trial of a rule to ease congestion at centre bounces. 
interesting they did this in one game. A rectangular, a rectangle measuring 30 yards goal to goal and 50 yards wing to wing was drawn in the centre of the ground, obviously the centre, the big you know, centre square. The centre square, yeah. And no more than four players were permitted in the rectangle at a centre bounce. So it's a, it's a centre square. Yeah, so that's what we've got now. Yeah. So it's interesting because they trialled it here and then it didn't come into effect until 1973. Yeah, wow. But you can, it's always this way. They start thinking about things, tweak it, maybe give it a little sprinkle, and then it comes in a little bit later, doesn't it? Yeah. They beat Fitzroy in this game, led by Vin Waite's three goals. Uh, then they recovered from an Essendon thrashing to crush Melbourne by five goals at Princess Park on a day when uh, Percy Jones began his celebrated career. On the back of a huge opening quarter, Carlton dominated the Demons throughout and cruised home for a welcome win. Adrian Gallagher kicked five goals in Carlton's 29-point win over Melbourne. Nichols and John Gould did well too. Round 17, John Nichols led his team to another big win over the Bulldogs, who were kept scoreless in the last quarter and recorded their lowest ever score against the Blues in four goals, 1-25. Their last game was a big loss to the Cats to end what had been a hopeful season. Yeah, so looking looking the good at certain stages, but then just falling falling apart as well. So there's definitely um, positives. You'd be looking there, going, okay, well, if we can get everyone up and running and looking good. I mean, they're starting to get a bit older, though, aren't they? A lot of these good players, as they mentioned, yeah. like you've got Serge Silvani, who's who's you know getting along. John Nichols has been around for a while. Barras is kind of towards getting towards the end. I mean, he's still playing well, but He's, well, that's the thing. How long they, now? How long are they going to uh, wait for Richmond uh, for Brassy to, to work his magic? How long has he got? Well, that's it exactly. Interesting. So, who do you reckon their lead goal kicker was for this year? Uh, probably Vin Waite, mate. No, that, I'm, I was surprised. I would have thought so too with the way you were talking about him, but he actually only ended up kicking eleven goals this season. It was Adrian Gallagher with twenty four. Okay. Very inaccurate in front of goals, though, because now we can see the behind score as well. It's funny. He kicked 24-43. Not ideal. Um, and the John Nichols medal this year went to? John Nichols. John Nichols. It was. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah, nice. uh, yeah so he, he was the winner. But, but I guess, um, interestingly, could have maybe been Barass if he'd, he'd played the whole year, as you were saying. He was he was in pretty good form at the start of the year there. So, yeah, interesting. In fifth position, Richmond Football Club with 13 wins, one draw and four losses, 123.2%. So Richmond this year, captained by Neville Crow, coached by Tommy Hafey. His first year down from uh, Wangaratta. Yes, yes, huge. So, uh, and obviously the fact that we've talked about a few other teams before we've talked about Richmond means that things are starting to look good down at Tigerland. Yeah, that, that uh, Len Smith magic is finally rubbing off. Oh, yeah. Um, now, let's start by talking about Dick Clay. Um, Kaz, he was, can you tell us a bit about uh, the de- his deb- debut? Should Dick Clay... A brilliantly talented footballer who started his career as a full forward after being recruited from Cairbram. He was the subject of a clearance dispute with North Melbourne, but the Tigers won his services and Clay did not let them down. The strong marking, long kicking Clay, uh, a Victorian representative, later became a superb defender. 
He played in the 1967, 69 and 73-74 Tiger Premiership sides and later coached VFA club Paran before having a spell as Richmond chairman of selectors in the 80s. All right. So round one was a good start for the new coach, Tommy Hafey, as the Tigers beat the Blues at Princess Park by one goal. Uh, this is the first time they'd won a round one match since 1958, but there was some drama in this game uh, when a groundsman caused football mayhem um, he accidentally threw a master switch that cut power from the siren. The result was that <laughs> Carlton Richmond played an extra five and a half minutes. Really? At the end of the game? Yeah, the emergency bell was missing from the timekeeper's box. It was later found in a wheelbarrow under the scoreboard. The timekeepers tried to signal the crowd uh, to signal. The crowd jumped the fence and mounted policemen galloped across the ground to tell the umpire who couldn't be convinced. Um, at the correct time, Richmond led by eight points and eventually won by six. And I've actually got some audio of some, uh, some players reminiscing about that. So, so quick listen. Oh, really? But that game, a fantastic close game all day. But then the most unbelievable thing of all, power went out and the siren, when it should have gone off, didn't go off. Well, it was on, and the ball was between the forward pocket and the half forward flank. Next thing I see, this horse is even overtook my shoulder and policeman saying, the game's finished, the game is finished. The police ran on the ground. They were trying to get the umpire's attention. People were on the ground. There were people. And uh, Carlton timekeeper wasn't saying it was over because Carlton was finishing strongly and he was hoping Carlton were going to get another goal. So that's when I took the ball. I ran up the far end of the, to where the scoreboard was and the timekeeper's box. Well, remembering Bill Stanborough, the timekeeper for Richmond. He's standing there going, Game finished, game finished. So I look at the car, like he's going. Uh... Round two, Dick Clay made his debut for Richmond against Footscray, lining up on Mr. Football himself, Ted Witten. And he performed reasonably well. Uh, it was an interesting tussle, considering that Witten had tried very hard to recruit him to Footscray as well. He, he uh, later stated that he learned more that afternoon than in his entire debut year. Playing on Teddy. Oh, wow. He later stated that he learned, I'm oh, sorry, uh, the 21-year-old, although a little astray with his kicking for goal, he finished with zero goals and four behinds. He had 22 disposals, uh, 19 kicks, three handballs, and took four marks in a fine first-up display as Richmond recorded a crushing 70-point win. Then round three, the Tiggies made it three from three with a nice polished win over their co-tenants, the Demons at the MCG by 43 points, Bill Barrett leading the way with 33 disposals. They controlled never should have let him in. Yeah. They controlled, <laughs> they controlled the round five game against the Cats. Paddy Gwinane with five goals, two led the way. Neville Crow had twenty. Neville Crow had twenty-eight disposals and eighteen hitouts, battling well against Polly Farmer and Sam Newman. They had a comfortable four-goal win over South and Fitzroy before their round nine clash against the Roos, which ended in a draw. The Tigers lucky to escape with the draw, with the Roos having those ten extra shots at goal that we talked about. Yeah. Uh, Paddy Gwinane and Bull Richardson then led them to a thirty-five point win over the Saints, who were in dominant form at that stage of the season. They lost a thriller to the Bombers before Roger Dean led them to a win over the Blues. In round 13, they beat the Dogs by 25. Then in round 14, had the same winning margin against the Demons, which left them on top of the ladder for the first time since around 7, 1951. Wow. Massive. Jeez, you'd be positive as a Tigers person. So the start of round 15, four rounds to go, the Tigers sat on top of the ladder. But a loss to the Pies and then to the Cats saw them slip straight out of the four. 
Round 17, they managed to beat the Swans in the thriller at Lakeside Oval, getting home by one point, led by Bill Barrett's 33 uh, posies. But they needed a miracle to make finals. Yeah, because, well, you can, I mean, just the way you're talking about it there, obviously so much is coming down to percentage. So even a win by one point isn't really going to get the job done. Nope. Um, that's massive. Top of the ladder with four rounds to go and then you fall out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, they, it reminds it. It sounds like this year a little bit as well with how close it was at the top. Yeah, with the um the lions and the doggies battling for that fourth spot. Yeah, which didn't well, matter. The, I mean, end. realistically, anyone could have gone from basically anyone could have gone from first to fifth yeah. in that last sort of round. It was incredible. Yeah. Um. So in the final round, they took on Fitzroy, and the first first half was too close. Um, however, the Tigers came out snarling, kicking 14 goals to four to run out 67-point winners. But it wasn't enough as they had to rely on other teams to lose and they yeah. teams all won instead. So 60, a 67-point win wasn't enough to clinch a top four spot. Wow. Jeez, that'd be frustrating. Uh, as we were told, their percentage is better than Essendon's, as we'll find out who finished fourth, but they were half a game behind. So that draw, yeah. that draw with the Kangaroos cost them in the end. Yeah. Oh, killer. Killer. So who do you reckon uh, would kick the most goals down at Tigerland? Bill Barrett. Uh, it wasn't Bill Barrett. It was Paddy Gwinane with 50 goals. But did Bill Barrett win their best and fairest? No, he didn't. Neville Crow won the best and fairest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. So that, there, there we have it for the Tigers. All right, Charlie, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, I'm assuming it's the Golden Fleece Night Series again. It is still the Golden Fleece Night Series. Isn't that a fantastic thing? Bring it back, I say. Bring it back. Oh, absolutely. We'd be mad not to. So, yes, yeah, so we've got the, uh, the, Golden, the Golden Fleece Night Premiership again. Um, what a fantastic thing. So um, we've got a few things that they decided, similar to what they've, they started doing in the preseason things, where they started to trial a few different rules in the Night Series okay. this time around. Um, so uh, at a meeting of the VFL coaches late in the season, it was proposed that three new rules should be trialled in the night series. And actually all of these rules were adopted for VFL premiership matches later. So um, we've got a free kick for the ball being kicked out of bounds on the full. So that was adopted in 1969, so as, yep. as it still is today. We got four boundary umpires trialled. Now... But this one only took 42 years to come into effect. They started this in 2008. <laughs> so, so not bad. And then the last one is was the centre square of 50 yards, which was marked on the field with only four players from each team allowed in the square when the ball was bounced in the centre circle. So as you said before, this was adopted in a slightly modified form in 73 and obviously mm. played in that one game during the year. Yeah. So... Um, we've got the we've got to talk about the prize money because in '66 we're not talking we're pounds and shillings anymore. We're talking dollars and cents. So no longer was the prize money fourteen hundred pounds. It was now two thousand eight hundred dollars for the winning team, and it's up from six hundred and fifty pounds to one thousand three hundred dollars for the runner-up. So, right. so there we go. Um, but unfortunately, obviously, um, people were a bit over the night series and the uh, numbers had a massive slump. So oh, really? 
1965, the total of spectators seen for the seven-game series um, in 65 is 153,365 people. This year, it slumped to 94,000. So uh, pretty, pretty low numbers there. And this was a sign of what was to come. Um, and even though the numbers bounced back a bit, they were declining as time went on. Yeah. So, do you want to hear about these games? Yeah, give me, give me some. All right. So the first game was South Melbourne Footscray at Lake Oval, of course, on a Thursday night. God, every time I talk about this, I just wish there was still footy on a Thursday and a Tuesday night at Lake Oval between these clubs. Wouldn't it be amazing? You'd be there every night. Oh, absolutely. So we had South Melbourne first versus Footscray and South Melbourne came out strong uh, and just kept it rolling from there, running out eventual winners, 14-12-96 to Footscray's 11-20-86. The second game was North Melbourne Fitzroy, with North Melbourne being in charge the entire way, uh, running out winners, 14-12-96 again the exact same score as the, the first game, to 11-10-76 over Fitzroy there. Richmond and Melbourne was the next week on the, th- on the Thursday, sorry, yeah, on the Thursday night. And uh, Richmond started strong coming into the halftime, uh, halftime break 25 points up, 7-5-47 to 2-10-22. But then Melbourne kicked into gear, kicking six goals in the, in the third quarter, and two in the last to run out winners, uh, 9-6, sorry, 10-13-73 to Richmond's 9-16-70. So Richmond's only managing two goals in the second half kind of killed them there. Uh, then we had Carlton and Hawthorne, whose game had to be moved due to torrential rain, and uh, that was moved to the Thursday, the 15th of September, uh, with Hawthorne, Starting strong and then Carlton pulling back and it was quite quite an arm wrestle, but Hawthorne managed to keep the lead the entire game. Hawthorne winning 9-14-68, Carlton's 9-5-59, um, which takes us to the semi-finals. So we had North versus South Melbourne uh, with North just running away with it from the very beginning. Um, South nipping at their heels, but never never quite there. Um, running out winners 13 12 90 to South Melbourne's 12 15 87. So very close in the end. Uh, and then the Hawthorne Melbourne semi final, we had Melbourne come out swinging in the first half, leading into the halftime break with two with a two point lead 6 6 to 6 4. But then Hawthorne had the legs, unfortunately, and ran away with it. Uh, being winners 13 10 88 to 8 12 60. So North Melbourne Hawthorne in the grand final there. North Melbourne trying to make it two in a row. Unfortunately, Hawthorne didn't stand a chance. North kicked five in the first, five in the second, five in the third, and five in the last quarter for a total of 20 12 132 to Hawthorne's 12 7 79. There you go, North, North go back to back. Um, which is, which is good for them. Bit of bit of pri- bit of a trophy, bit of silverware in there. And I've got a little uh, bit, little fun fact here down at the bottom. Um, these teams played a rematch at York Park later in the year in October, with North winning again, 
and it was an exhibition match, but that was the debut of Peter Hudson. Is that right? Apparently, yeah. Well, fantastic. That's awesome. And there's the Golden Fleece Night Series. Wouldn't it be great if the winner got like a Golden Fleece? Yeah, absolutely. And just wore it. Wouldn't it be fantastic? Yeah. Or drape it on their boardroom table. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, let's get to those teams that made finals. And fun facts for you, Charlie. Please. For the first time since 1931, the finalists are all the same as the year before. Since 1931. Yep. Wow. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. Although not, mm. not that surprised that it's actually interesting that it is the same. Yeah, wow. Not in the same um not in the same order, of course. No. no. Slightly different. Slightly different. Well, I guess we better talk about who uh, finished fourth, Tim. Finishing fourth was Essendon with 14 wins, four losses, 121%. Uh, so Essendon this year, the same olds, coached again by Johnny Coleman and captained again for his second year by Ken Fraser. Indeed. And some debutantes here. We've got Alan Noonan and Alan Hurd, James's father. Ah. Uh, but the Dons came into this season having lost several big-name players, uh, including Bluey Shelton. But this didn't stop them having uh, good wins over the Cats and the Kangaroos in the first two rounds. Round three, a big crowd of 43,487 turned up to Windy Hill to see the Bombers hold the Pies to three goals in the first three quarters. And despite kicking themselves in an accurate eight goals, 18, they won by two. Uh, Bombers backman Greg Brown was recalled from his honeymoon for this match as well. I think he was flown down especially. Um, their defence was then shown up in a big loss to Carlton. Uh, then they had a bounce-back win against Fitzroy, in which Ted Fordham kicked six goals, five, but also saw Russell Blue injure his knee and miss the rest of the season. But Ted Fordham continued on his merry way, kicked seven goals, six the following week in a win over the Hawks. And the D's and the Saints, I don't know how the D's did that. They, you know, down to the doldrums, but they still managed to beat the Bombers. <laughs> um, they got the better of the Bombers um, before the Dons were able to hold the Dogs to just four goals in their round nine win at Windy Hill in what was Jack Clark's 250th game. Against the Tigers in round 10, the Bombers started with a tactic of playing Don McKenzie on Tigers champ Bill Barrett. With uh, with Macca smashing into him for the first few minutes and putting him off his game. Oh, okay. So a bit of a bit of a tag, was it? Is that what they're thinking? Like a really hard early tag, get him off his game early, and then this and then let him do his thing. Yeah, kind of. And this this uh, this resulted in McKenzie getting reported seven minutes and thirty two seconds into the game. <laughs> um, oh, they have a fourteen point lead at three quarter time, but the Tigers kicked four quick girls at quick goals early on before the Bombers hit back with the lead seesawing. The Tigers looked to ed- take the edge when Peter Hogan gold, but the Dons kicked two goals, one in the dying stages to snatch a four-point victory. Round 12 was a bad loss to Geelong, hurting more so because of Brian Sampson's season-ending injury. Ah. Round 13, they beat the Roos by 10 points. Again, an inaccurate game, which both teams only scored six goals apiece. Uh, round 14 was a big day at Victoria Park against the Pies. Bombers kicked eight goals, one in the opening quarter to set the tone for the game and, uh, I guess, shut the crowd up. Uh, the Pies only kicked seven for the whole game while the Bombers kicked ten more. Ted Fordham, again, the star, kicking ten goals, four. Only the third non-Collingwood player to kick double digits at Victoria Park. Hey. Okay. 
They beat Carlton, Fitzroy and Hawthorne leading into the final round when they still needed to make that they needed to win the final round to make finals. Round 18 against the Demons. The Bombers trailed early but took a one-point lead into the third quarter and ran away with the game in the last. Holding the Demons goalless um, in the second and last quarters because of the wind, I'm assuming. Uh. Fordham kicked four goals, five. In this game, you'll be surprised to learn that John Coleman was again reported. <laughs> this time by boundary umpire Brian Loden for abusive language. Oh, my Coleman. God. Just incredible. Like, it was yeah, it was ridiculous. It was cleared, but it dragged on and on. After the hearing, Loden tried to go and shake Coleman's hand, but Coleman would have none of that. Really? So he's abused him, and Loden's trying to move on from it, and Coleman's just not giving him anything. And it's unbelievable. Yeah, ridiculous. I love it. Yeah. So you managed to beat the D's to make the finals. Well, at least you got a little bit back there. Okay, good yeah. on you. I'm I'm really glad for you. Thanks. <laughs> so, who uh, who was the lead goal kicker for the Dons sure. this year? Surely Ted Fordham. Of course, it was with seventy six goals, huge yep. by the great man and the Crichton Medal winner. Oh, Jack Clark. It was Don McKenzie. Ah, oh, Macca. Yeah, big Macca. So there we go. So the Dons into the into the finals. Too long also finished with 14 wins, four losses, but they had 17 more percent than Essendon, 137.6%. So the Cats, they're captained again by Poly, by Graham Polly Farmer and coached by uh, Premiership star Peter Pianto. Yeah, so a um, little story on that as well. The end of 65, they told Bobby Davis, hey, we're going to advertise the coaching. You're, you're very welcome to apply. You'll probably get it. Um, and he was so offended that they advertised it that he didn't apply. So, Isn't that interesting? Like, mm. if you, and I, I kind of understand where he's where he's coming from as well. I mean, there's so much ego there, of course. There always is with with people like, of his amazing talent. But yeah, to say we're going to advertise the job and you're probably going to get it if you apply, then why advertise it? Yeah, it's a it's a weird yeah. sort of double. Double standard there, isn't it? So, yeah. Very much so. Interesting. Um, Although, yeah, Peter Pianto, I mean, yeah. I wonder how it all worked, how what the, you know, you look at um the systems in place now of coaches going up in front of these huge panels and having to put on, like, you know, presentations and go through all this different stuff. I wonder whether they did the same thing in the 60s. I highly doubt yeah. it for some reason. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, after a first-up loss to Essendon, the Cats beat South at home by 20. In round three, Polly Farmer dominated the match against the Dogs. He had 11 kicks, eight marks, 16 handballs, 27 hitouts, two goals. Oh Cats won by 40, and Polly Farmer took home the $15 Belmont Timber Award. Best player. <laughs> In round six, they beat North Melbourne at Arden Street by 37, although it should have been more. They kicked 12 goals, 20. Uh, Bill Ryan was their worst defender with six goals, no, uh, sorry, six behinds, no goals. Mm. Round seven was a lucky win over Carlton by one point. They came from 19 points down. Scores were tied with time running out. The ball was kicked Geelong's way, and Carlton defender John Gill raced back to defend the ball, but he accidentally kicked the ball off the ground and threw for a behind, thus scoring the winning point for Geelong. Oh, my gosh. Mm, the ruck battle was close. Uh, that day, Farmer winning 27 hitouts, John Nichols 33. 
Their round eight loss to Collingwood was their last loss of the home and away season. They then went on a 10-game winning streak, reminiscent of their glory days of 51 and 52. Yeah. This was kicked off in spectacular fashion in round nine against the Lions. They led the Lions by a point at quarter time, but would kick 16 of the next 17 goals to win by 113. Oh, huge. Doggan with four goals, and Polly Farmer had a stat line of 18 kicks, 25 handballs, six marks, 33 hitouts, and a goal. That is a game. That's a lesson. That's a lesson in that's how to be a rusher. That's almost Max Gorn like. <laughs> it's corny yes. It is corny yes. Love it. Uh, round, round 10, the Cats trounced the Hawks by 10 goals, but the sensation of the game was Polly Farmer being reported for the first time in his career for striking delicate Des Dixon. Uh, he struck him with a clenched fist in the first quarter. Farmer pleaded not guilty with the defence that he had thrown his arms backwards and trying to keep his balance and that it was not a blow. Dixon said he fell to the ground when hit um, when the tribunal man asked him if it was uh, who would hit him, if it was a uh, farmer, Dixon replied, yes, he'd hit him on the forehead and he was found guilty. Uh, but farmer only received a severe reprimand. So no, uh, no loss of matches. But were they a bit worried? They didn't want to take the, uh, take the brown law away from him. Do you reckon? Yeah, well, he didn't win the brown law. So no, I know, but you know, yeah, I know what you mean. And he does play for Geelong. We know Geelong players don't get reported. <laughs> it started this early. <laughs> uh, they easily beat the Demons. Uh, then Doug Wade kicked eight goals, one against the Bombers in a big statement win. Uh, they beat South by a goal, Footscray by 20. Then in a real test of character, they took on the Saints at Cardinia Park. And although trailing it three-quarter time by three points, the Cats kicked six last-quarter goals to win by 23. Doug Wade, again, the hero with eight goals. Oh, massive. All right. <laughs> In round 17 against North Melbourne, um, Geelong was leading. They had a six-goal lead at three-quarter time. However, with seven minutes to play, Farmer flew for a centre bounce, and there was a tangle of legs, and as a pack dispersed, Farmer laid drive. He was on the ground um, in, in a bit of pain. Trainers spread from all parts of the boundary as Farmer clutched his knee. Uh, he sat up, and a signal was a stretcher was signalled for, and he raced onto the ground while the crowd remained in shock. Oh, no. Geelong players watched Farmer and not the ball as play went on, uh, with North ending up with a goal. But most spectators were still watching the drama and didn't realise um, what had happened. Uh, so Farmer was going to miss a few games. He ended up missing the last two. Uh, North, in, in that game, North added three more goals before the Cats got their mind back in the game and ran out 39-point winners. Um, so they kicked, so they kicked the goal while they were still waiting for Farmer to get stretched off the ground. That's Pretty much, yeah. That is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and then they beat Carlton in the final round to go into the finals full of confidence, so 10 straight wins. Well, that, is, that would make you feel pretty good. So uh, I'm sure, surely Doug Wade, leading goal kicker. Doug Wade was lead goal kicker with um, 52 goals. And uh, best and fairest, the Kaji Greaves medal. Holly Farmer? I went to Dennis Marshall. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah another, another Western Australia boy. Yes. Yeah, so there you go. Finishing second was St Kilda, who also had 14 wins and four losses, but they finished another 5% above Geelong with 142.8%. So St Kilda this year, coached by Alan Jeans and captained by Daryl Baldock. Uh, great time down at the Saint at down at the Saints. It really was. And look, I'm gonna go through the Saints in a bit more detail because I kind of think they deserve. Like, this is their one oh, year, Charlie. Absolutely. So, Got to make the most of it. Um, big shout out to Russell Holmesby. A lot of this information comes from him. 
and also a man by the name of Peter Clark, who wrote about the whole 66 season on Footy Almanac. So I've got a bit of this information from there. So I'll start in round one. Demons taking taking on the Demons, the Saints. Um, controversy at the end of the first quarter when the siren was blown two minutes early. Both Norm Smith and Alan Jeans walked onto the field before realising the game was still going and had to return to their seats. I mean, if it was Coleman, he would have been reported for sure. Um, <laughs> well, Coleman probably would have walked on and slapped an umpire or something. Probably. Uh, the Ds stayed with the Saints for most of the first quarter until a lapse in time on where the Saints booted three goals to rest the advantage and then they kicked 12 goals to two after halftime to win by 72 points. Um, Big Carl Dillerich was under an injury cloud, but he was our best at field in the end. Round two was a windy game against the Blues. The Saints kicked into gear in the second quarter, but it was a really after halftime the Saints went on with their business, finishing with 15 goals to Carlton seven. Uh, Ian Stewart took control in the centre and provided the Saints with opportunities to open up the play Bulldog kicked four, um, and in successive weeks, the Saints had managed to restrict the opposition to only two goals in the second half. So really stamping their authority. Yeah, wow. Allowing the allowing the offence to do what they want because the defence is so strong, right? Exactly. Round three was north. In the first half, the Roos applied sustained pressure for their opponents, forcing errors and stopping the trademark flow on St Kilda game. Uh, but the match-winning move from uh, Yabby Jeans in the third quarter was putting halfback flanker Daryl Griffith onto the ball as a free-ranging ruck rover, resulting in four quick goals that helped the Saints to a six-goal win. Bulldog best on ground with five goals. Round four, they welcomed the Cats to uh, Moorabbin, and after a rare scoreless first term, a brilliant nine-goal burst by the Saints in the second quarter overwhelmed the Cats and helped set up a big win for the Saints. Round five against the Swans. It took a long time for the Saints to run away with this game. They kicked five goals to one in the last quarter, but up until three-quarter time, it was a bit of a struggle. Uh, the Swans were drawing within three points late in the third, but uh, in the end, it was a 42-point win. And one oh. unusual, an unusual sight for this game, uh, wingman Ross Oakley uh, played for about five minutes with only one boot because a trainer uh, was making some repairs to his boot on the boundary line in mid-game. Ross? Ross? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. There you go. Surely you'd take the other boot off too. <laughs> Even well, at spares? Would you? Yeah. Well, I suppose you can't sub the player out, can you? Because once they're off, I think they're off then. There was no yeah. swapping. So what a shame they've moved to Moorabbin now and that didn't count to try and bring back the lakeside tally, the lakeside tally in a bit more evenness, unfortunately. Yeah, well, oh. they won the last, the last four, but I don't think they really care, to be honest, Charlie. No, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, round six, the Saints took on the lowly and winless Fitzroy um, and took them too lightly at first. They were clumsy and played mistake-ridden football. Um, and the, the Lions really put on pressure for the first three quarters. Uh, but they suddenly burst into action in the last quarter of an eight-goal tear. Alan Morrow celebrated his 150th game in style by kicking five goals. Uh, Roberts was also with five. And Ian Stewart led the engine room and was best on ground in the middle. It seems like it's a very, very even season. Like a lot of guys are playing ripping games and, you know, they're not reliant on just Bulldog and, and a couple of others to get the job done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, round seven, it was a game against the Hawks. It started slowly, but eventually got going. A nine-goal second term set up a potential big win for the Saints. But the Hawks refused to give in and still had a chance going into the last quarter, only down by 14. But the Saints steadied the ship and ran out four-goal winners. Um, they kicked a score of over 100 points for the sixth time in seven rounds. Have they had a loss yet at this no, stage of the season, Tim? No, this is uh, seven in a row, going on to eight in a row now. 
Uh, against their, their bogey side, the Bombers, who got them in the, the uh, grand final last year. Yes. Uh, plus, they had a, there was a big crowd of 50,000 at Moorabbin. Baldock, Ditterich, and Ian Stewart all absent. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Dons kicked the first two goals, uh, but Alan Jeans, the tactical manoeuvre, made a vital move shifting uh, Verdon Howe to full forward. Essendon came again in the third quarter, kicking four goals, but Jeans responded by moving Howe out to centre-half forward with instant results. Uh, the Saints showed greater desperation in the last quarter to reclaim the lead and hold the Dons goalless. Uh, Jack Austin kicked the, the crucial first goal of the last quarter that brought the Saints to within a point of the tiring Bombers. And then St Kilda were well served in defence through the fanatical efforts of Sinman, Sirikowski, Murray, Head and Breen in denying opportunities to the Bombers. A long kick by Dale Griffith 20 minutes into the last quarter resulted in a lucky goal that put the Saints in front. Uh, the ball landed in front of several players but bounced fortuitously for the Saints evading all Essendon defenders and rolling over the goal line. Saints by seven. <laughs> oh, massive. Uh, leading into round nine, um, one of the commentators, I think it might have been Lou Richards, or one of the commentators was saying, the Saints were a really good chance of going through the season undefeated. Um, no team had ever done that before, so guess what happened against the Tigers? They lost, of they course. Lost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they slipped... Well, the following week, they slipped from top spot because then the uh, the Pies thumped them by 12 goals. Yeah, wow. And we we already talked earlier about how close it was at the top of the ladder, didn't we? So Absolutely. Even, even with all those wins at the start, you know, a couple of losses and you drop. Yep, and we'll, we'll get into that. So round 11 was a return to Moorabbin, just what the Saints needed. They took on the Doggies uh, and they dominated. Ian Stewart taking command in the middle. The Doc, Daryl Borlock kicking three goals. Uh, but, yeah, Ian Stewart best on ground, really firming for that Brownlow medal, Moz. Oh, yeah. They had a win over the Demons in the cold in Tassie-like conditions, which saw Baldock best on ground. But they went down – then they went down to the Blues. Round 14, they took on North Melbourne in a very poor quality game. Charlie, we talked about how uh, error, how riddled, riddled the uh, Kangaroos were with the kicking. Oh, so yes. The third yeah. quarter in this game saw the Saints kick one goal 10 and North Melbourne one behind. Yeah, ridiculous. But a late flurry of goals saw uh, the Saints win by 38. A loss by Geelong was followed by a completely dominating South Melbourne game. Ross Oakley, Jeff Brown, and Stewart, best for the Saints in a brilliant performance. Up forward, the Dock had the ball on a string, carving up South Melbourne. Um, but towards the end of this game, he injured his knee and Dock was replaced in the last quarter with worries about his availability in the coming games. And we'll get more into this because this is big news. Yeah, massive. Uh, round 17 was a really big game. The very last game at Brunswick Street Oval. Not that it was known at the time. So St. No, of course, yes. Yeah. And the Lions took it up to the Saints, but the finals bound Saints steadied in the second half, largely through the brilliance of Kevin Neal and Alan Davis. Um, the result was merely a formality. The Saints won by 84 points. However, the story of the day was Ruckman, Carl Ditterich. So... In the late in the last in the last quarter, I believe he was reported for striking uh, Daryl Peoples of Fitzroy, and had to face up to the tribunal. No, so field umpire Perkins reported him, as did two boundary umpires. Uh, this is what the umpire said: The St Kilda player Ditterich ran about fifteen yards straight at the Fitzroy player. And with raised forearms, struck him in the face, Perkins said. The Fitzroy player fell to the ground after receiving the blow. I told Ditterich I was reporting him and rolled the Fitzroy player over to get his number. 
Rolling over on the ground. That's unbelievable. Um, So in a plea for Ditterich, advocate Charles Gordian, St Kilda's advocate, said the St Kilda Ruckman struck peoples with a left shoulder, not the right forearm. This is what he actually said. Okay. Uh, There are certain characteristics about Ditterich which make him more prominent than possibly any other player on the field. The colour of his hair and the magnificent physique are two things which make him obvious to everybody. The slight and and most minor incidents in which he is involved become sensational because of this. He suffers a lot of indignities in the game because of his type of play, but each of his critics would like to see Ditterich in his side. Like every top player, he's subjected to a lot of adverse criticism. To me, often um, people say very similar things about me. That it's my <laughs> ma- my magnificent physique that makes me stand out, and I get in a lot of trouble. Yeah. So, so this plea was in vain. Uh, Diderich was reported and rubbed out for six matches. Six matches. Six matches, which uh, would include the grand final. Yes. Whoa. So a huge loss. All right, so into round 18, the last round of the season. The Saints need to win. If they lose, they're out because all the other teams around them, the percentage is all the same. We know those. We know second, third, and fourth all finish with the same percentage. Same yeah, and losses. Same. And Carlton, no, who, who, who Richmond. finished fifth? Richmond, Richmond, yeah. And they, they're years. sitting there looking good, aren't they? So they were just waiting for, for a, a result to go their way. Yeah. So... Um, Everything was on the line. The Saints sprung a huge surprise pre-game by naming Carol, uh, Captain Daryl Baldock on the bench. At halftime, the Saints led by 13, but the young Hawks mounted a challenge in the third. Their two quick goals ensured that St Kilda was now on a, had a real fight in their hands. They hit the front and took control of the game with another goal that put them 11 points up. Then a chant of, we want Baldock, we want Baldock, broke out around the ground. Who should emerge from the bench but Daryl Baldock himself? <laughs> With the grandstands literally shaking, Baldock threw off his gown and ran onto the field, and he was in everything. He was instrumental in most of the forward moves. He paved the way for Cowboy Neil to kick two goals just before three-quarter time and helped the Saints get back momentum. The Hawks refused to drop off the pace, but the, and the Saints weren't safe until Baldock helped Neil kick his fifth goal. Um, Saints got home by 10 points. Uh, and have now qualified for the 66 finals again, but in very dramatic fashion. Amazing. So they were that close to not making the finals in 66. Yeah. Yep. And what, a, what an unbelievable amount of pressure to come on at halftime in a, when you're losing to that sort of chant and then actually oh. stand up to that pressure. That is outrageous. Yeah. Well, he's a, he's a champion. So Yeah. He's a captain. Uh, captain's job. That's it. That's it. So uh, tell me, who do you reckon was the lead goal kicker down at uh, Saints this year? Surely Cowboy Neal. It was absolutely Cowboy Neal with 55 goals. And best and fairest, the Trevor Barker Award. It's got to be the Brownlow medalist, doesn't it, Ian Stewart? Miss Ian. It does. Well, it's interesting you say that because it's not always the case, especially these days, is it? It's very, very rarely the case that the Brownlow Weddles wins the, wins the best and fairest, but it was in this case. It was Ian Stewart, of course. And then top of the ladder was Collingwood with 15 wins, three losses and 157.2%. So uh, Collingwood this year coached again by Bobby Rose and captained by Des Tudnam. Uh Top of the ladder for the Pikes. First time since 1930, I believe, they finished top of the ladder. Mm. Ah. Which surprised me. It is, isn't it? 
when you consider they've won a couple of flags yeah, in that four, time. Yeah, four flags in that time. Four flags are not finishing top. Yeah, massive. And the debutant for Collingwood that year was Wayne Richardson. Kaz, can you tell us a bit more about him? So Wayne Richardson, um, former South Fremantle player, Collingwood had a bit of a trouble getting him over from Western Australia. Um, however, the and it says, however, the young Richardson had to stand out of football in 1965 before winning his release in 1966. He then became one of the finest players of his era and a true Collingwood champion. Richardson played as a centerman in WA and was tall for a rover, uh, but was so skillful at reading the play that he became an instant hit with the Magpies. He played with a level of coolness and calm that meant he could handle any situation. He was able to play 140 games in succession at one stage uh, and attributed his resilience to a fitness regime that included extra Wednesday training sessions on his own and a routine of swimming uh, at the St Kilda Sea Baths every Monday after a game. Mm, sounds very familiar. Richardson won the Magpie Best in Ferris in 71-74 and club champion from midway through the 1971 season, replacing Terry Waters. Waters. <laughs> uh, to the end of the 75 season. Um, all right, so round one, satisfying 53-point demolition of the Hawks at Victoria Park, a memorable for second-year player Peter McKenna, kicking 12 goals too. 12-2, massive. Yep. That's huge. Um, round two was equally as satisfying as they took hold of the Lions and destroyed them. McKenna held to just one, though. Terry Waters, the star of that game. Round three was the return of the Somerville Stakes, but the Bombers again beating them. And they had very similar wins over Richmond and North Melbourne, both by around the 35-point mark. Um, they got one over the Demons by 33 at Victoria Park. They beat the Dogs. Then the Cats gave them a good run for their money in the first half. But Ian Graham, 6 goal 6 led them to another comfortable win. Round 10 was the real test, taking on uh, St Kilda for top spot at Victoria Park. And the first half was close, but the Pies put the boot in in the third with six goals to one. They took a commanding lead and then four goals to one in the final quarter. Saw them with a 72-point lead and top spot on the ladder. Massive. So that gives you a good, good little men mental edge over what at this time was looking as the other challenger for, for the premiership as yeah, well. Yeah, and yeah, most people had kind of put it down to it's probably going to be a St Kilda Collingwood grand final by the stage. But yeah. they had little to celebrate as Carlton upset them the following week by 11 points. Uh, then they rolled the Hawks by 73, the Lions by 67 before the Bombers beat them again. Hmm. Round 15 at the MCG against Richmond in front of a crowd of 73,834. Uh, the Bob Rose coach Magpies made a dramatic recovery after trailing by 21 points at quarter, at quarter time. They had an eight-goal second quarter driven by Collingwood's centre line with Rovers, Tully and Barry Price featuring in long kicks to the goal square. On-baller Wayne Richardson kicked three goals for the quarter. And the move of Ian Graham to centre-half forward was a winner after Doug Seal was well held by Tigers' Kevin Smith. A highlight of the game was an 80-metre eight, drop kick from the centre by Colin Tully. But then to finish off, they had strong wins over North and then the Demons, and they were back on top before their round 18 destruction of the Bulldogs. So round 18, they beat the Bulldogs by 104 points. Uh, and the Doggies kicking just three goals for the game. Ian Graham kicked eight goals, six, which means the Pies are primed for the finals on top. Absolutely. 1930. Who who was the elite goal kicker for the Pies this year? Um, Pin McKenna? 
No, it was uh, Ian Graham with 58. Okay. And who won the Copeland Trophy in 66? Tottenham? It was Terry Waters. Okay. Yeah. The Brown Low Down Low with Moz. So Ian Stewart won his second Brown Low this season, two consecutive Brown Lows. Um, but this time he was the outright winner with 21 votes. No count back necessary this year. He won clearly ahead of Carlton's John Nichols, who finished with 17 votes. And coming in third was Geelong's John Sharrock with 16 votes. Last year in 65, Ian said he didn't think he had a ghost of a chance of winning. And, but then this year in 66, with all the added pressure of being the reigning Brownlow medalist, um, as the season was coming to a close, he said he didn't play his best in the last three to four weeks and therefore, again, wasn't expecting to win and was once again shocked that he won a brown note. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also claimed that he simply couldn't have won the award without such elite rovers around him in the centre of the ground. Um, yeah. And this season he polled in eight of his 16 matches. Love the, mo- love the modesty on the man. Yeah. Oh, he sounds delightful. Very um, mild-mannered and humble. Yeah. Um, so if we compare that to the Sporting Globe's Hayden Bunton medal, um, which was won by Daryl Baldock, his, his teammate on 19 votes equal with John Nichols, Ian Stewart two behind him on 17. And wasn't that the same case? Didn't Baldock win it? Um, win the yeah. the uh, Hayden Bunton last year as well? Yep. So there you go. And just before we get to the finals, the Coles goals winner I know we're waiting to hear about was Collingwood with 236 goals. Oh, okay. It's time for finals. Finals o'clock. So the first semi-final was played between Geelong and Essendon in front of 93,765 people. And uh, it was an absolute shootout in the first quarter, Timmy. It was. So uh, this is the fourth time in five years the Cats have played the Bombers in the semi-final. Hey, okay. Yeah. Um, we know the Cats are riding the back of a 10-game winning streak as well. Polly Farmer's come back into the side also. So Cats are definitely uh, yes. favourites. But the Bombers bolted from the blocks against the slow Cats and raced to a potential match-winning lead of seven goals at half-time. Uh, a very poor second, by, second quarter by the Cats where they scored one point added to their woes. But the Cats came back. Uh, they got within a whisker of stealing, stealing the second semi-final after Essendon had established a lead of over 50 points midway through the third quarter. But at the finish, Essendon won by 10. Their play was judged not up to the high standards of the previous few years. Skipper Ken Fraser played a mercurial game for the Dons, capped off in the last quarter when he provided the inspirational 60-metre goal that helped the team get over the line for the fast-finishing Cats. Oh, love that. So that takes us to the second semi uh, to see who's going to have to go ahead and play Essendon in that prelim. Yeah, I think a repeat of last year's uh, semi as well, which St Kilda won by a point. Yes, the Collingwood St Kilda semi there. And uh, St Kilda just decided not to show up, Mons. Yeah, it looked like it. At the beginning. Uh, they were oh. having a little, a little rest. One <laughs> point in the rest. first quarter. Unbelievable, Tim. Um, so St Kilda brought in veteran uh, defender Verdon Howell, who missed a few games and 
Daryl Bulldog's also in the starting lineup now. Colin Locale Ditterich. Yeah, uh, Ditterich is gone. Yep. Uh, Collingwood dominated the first quarter, though, and established a five goal lead. Uh, Saints are only kicking one point. Saints worked from this slumber and slammed on six goals to one in the second term. Then the game saw a seesawing affair in the third quarter with the first, the Magpies and the Saints taking the ascendancy in play. Scores were close at three quarter time with St Kilda just four points in front. Uh, Des Tudnam was superb throughout the afternoon, kicking seven goals, and he was the match winner in the end. He kicked two yeah. quick goals in time on which sealed his team's courageous 10-point victory. Uh, Tudnam commented after the match that it was the most rewarding game he'd ever played for Collingwood, and he was carried off the ground by Ray Gablich uh, in a spontaneous gesture of love for his skipper. Um, Hello, there you go. Sadly for the Saints, wingman Ross Oakley uh, hurt his left knee. He also injured himself in the semi-final last year, so he's going to miss another grand final. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, yeah. that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh. Seven goals for Tottenham, though. That's an incredible semi-final. So much so that Daryl Griffith, who played on him for St Kilda, was in tears after the game because he thought <laughs> he cost the Saints a shot at the flag. Yeah, but you've got to—I mean, you've got to give it to the Saints here. Coming, coming out and being five goals behind after the first quarter, and then coming back and kicking six goals in the second quarter is pretty impressive. Like, very it shows a lot of mental strength down at. Uh, down at the Saints. Yeah, and the Saints would probably take confidence from that as well, knowing like they've just got to fix a few little things if they play them again. Yeah. And they can pull it back. And realistically, if shut down, if they figure out a way to shut down Tudnam, they can beat Collingwood. Yep. So, yeah. You're spot on. So that takes us to the prelim where we've got uh, St Kilda now playing off Essendon to see who's going to meet Collingwood in that grand final. So in front of 93,453 people, big crowds, big crowds. Yeah, so um, wet and greasy conditions proved to be no problem for the Saints. Stewart, Ian Stewart reveling in the mud. The Dons were slow to start, and in the early stages of the match, they didn't have the appetite for the conditions that the Saints did. Essendon's half they were, just, they were just dancing on top while the while the Dons were swimming in the mud, Timmy. What was the, going the on? Was just, the Bombers just crumpled <laughs> on the pressure. The St Kilda defenders were able to consistently rebound the ball without conceding easy goals. Uh, in the goalless third quarter, the Saints held the downwind Dons to five points, which ruled out a second-half comeback. Uh, Ted Fordham, their big goal kicker, kicked one goal, was well down on his average. And the game was a bit of a boil over in the end. The Saints running out winners by seven goals against a pretty listless estimate. So get, getting a little bit of payback for last year there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and... Which which takes us through the granny against with the two teams who really deserve to be in there in sixty six, right? Absolutely. So in front of a hundred and two thousand and fifty five people, we had the grand final played between Collingwood and St Kilda, and what a game it was in in sixty six. Oh, absolute cracker! Um, I've I've watched it. I've been been on YouTube looking at it, listening to the classic commentary as well, which you probably recognise. If you if you heard it, so um, you know, let's instead of talking about it ourselves, let's let's ask the captain himself about it. Let's put up that wayback when machine. Oh, we got to do it! I can't wait. I'm so excited. The respective coaches, Alan Jeans and Kilda, Bob Rose of Collingwood, have given the players their final address. Now it's up to the players themselves as they battle it out for the Premiership for 1966. Umpire Crouch has the ball in the centre. The Rucks are there. 
All set to go in the start of the final quarter. And there's the bounce of the ball. Ruckman go to it. Daryl Bulldog, Doc, what a win. What a day. You must be so proud. I'm just so, look so happy. The photographer just asked me to pour some champagne from the cup over my head. My eyes sting a little bit, but I'll tell you what, we are celebrating like a club winning their first premiership should. So a great start to the season with those eight straight wins, but things seem to wobble a bit after that. And um, one of those things uh, being your knee. Can you uh, give us a bit more info about that? Yeah, look, as you know, I hurt my knee pretty badly in round 15 against uh, South down at Moorabbin. The doctor wanted me to put it in plaster for six weeks. I said, if you put it in plaster, I'll be here for a year. I went home that night wearing a uh, pressure bandage, actually. And it ached so badly I had to take it off and it swelled up. I thought, yeah, the doctor might have been right. And you missed a few games. I missed two. Uh, but you came back in spectacular fashion in round 18 against the Hawks. I did. It was a must-win game. We actually faced the possibility of missing finals altogether if we didn't win. I wasn't in the original 20, but at the last minute, uh, it was decided that I would be the 20th man. But as it turns out, one of my horses was actually running at Sandown that day, and I had enough time to catch the train out to Oakley, watch the race, and then come back to the ground without anyone suspecting that I was in the team. So, um, mate, the Saints were wobbling a little bit in that third quarter there, and the crowd was absolutely paying for you to come on. I was sitting there hoping that I wouldn't have to go on. But within the first few minutes of me coming on, I kicked a goal and, well, we won. Now, I don't want to be a downer, but Carl Ditterich, what happened? Yeah, well, as you know, he was rubbed out for striking Darryl Peoples at Brunswick Street Oval a few weeks back. There wasn't much in it. He just had a bit of a brain snap. There's no real reason that he had to punch the bloke, not at that stage of the season. Uh, so first up in the finals was another semi against Collingwood, uh, who actually smashed you during the season, but today was actually another thriller. Yeah, well, they jumped us in the first quarter, five goals to one point. You know, we had a lot of play from that period on and only went down by 10 points in the end. But the Magpie captain, he was a difference. And uh, how was the reaction to that loss? Disappointment. We just couldn't control Tuddy. He had an awesome match. He kicked seven goals on Daryl Griffith. After the game, Daryl just couldn't stop crying. He knew that he'd let the players down. And that's how bad he felt. But there was hope. There was. We thought we could get over Essendon in the preliminary final. And then we'd face Collingwood again, and we just thought we had these blokes covered. So once we overcame Essendon, we knew we had a very, very good chance. Uh, let's get back to your knee. There was a rumour you'd heard of again. Uh, we have a feeling there's, you know, some truths that might need to be told. I was feeling terrific at Thursday's training. During a simple drill, the ball came to me and I should have taken a pretty easy mark. My legs kind of got crossed over when I was handballing to Rossi Smith. I felt the knee go again. I yelled out to Jeansy obviously right away and he called everyone over to the centre and told them basically that training was over. We all ran off so that no one knew that I was actually injured. Honestly, it didn't look good. But I went for a run last night and it started to feel okay. So, look, I knew I was going to be okay and I could get through and lead the boys down the race today. Now, Doc, would you say that you were better prepared for today than you were last year uh, when you were expected to beat Essendon? Absolutely. But the lessons go further back than that. You know, I started in 62. But talking to Jeansy, he talks about the lessons he learned from the 61 semi. And then again from the final, we lost to the Demons in 1963. Everything was leading up to today. 
Can you tell us what it was like just before the game? They got everyone out of the rooms except for the players and the officials. Gabby took us into a little side room, spoke to us for about 10 minutes. We're all pretty tense with pent up energy and nerves, so it was pretty quiet. And he spoke in a clear voice, and then he'd go up a level. He had us ready to run through brick walls. And what was it like on the ground? As we ran onto the ground, it was like running out in front of the Coliseum. The roar of the crowd was just absolutely something that struck you immediately. It was just so unbelievable, the atmosphere, with 100,000-plus people all yelling and screaming. So, I mean, he kicked seven goals against you in that first semi. What was the plan to curtail Des Cuddenham after, after, that, uh, after that game? Well, after the semi, James brought John Bingley into the team, really with the ultimate goal of taking care of Tuddy in the big one. James was confident, though, in his ability. And it all started before the ball had even been bounced. He refused to shake his hand at the start of the game. Binger just went everywhere with him. No matter how many times he got bowled over, he just kept going. So your dual Brownlow medalist, Ian Stewart, had an interesting start to the game. Yeah, Stewie gets bloody nervous before games. quite violently too, might I add. Jeff Crouch actually turned to him just before the bounce and said, come on, mate. And he replied with something like, just go and bounce the bloody thing so I can stop being sick. But, you know, as soon as the ball was up, he kicked as long as he did. But Tuddy tried to run through. He missed him by a whisker. If he'd connected, that might have been a very, very different game. Uh, and apart from uh, Stewie's lucky miss, it was a pretty good start. The Cowboy got the first goal, and then I made it two in the first five minutes. I took a mark a long way out, and Stewie kept telling me to have a shot, so I did. When I kicked it, pain just shot up my leg. It felt like my knee went further than the ball, but it held up in the end. Mate, then this, that second quarter was a real seesawing affair, and it was sort of goal for goal with some absolutely spectacular play. Yeah, but most of the spectacular play came from the Magpies. Those goals by Tudden and Richardson were amazing. We were actually lucky to skip ahead of us. Those goals lifted the noise in the stadium. Well, with a point in at half-time, what was the feeling in the rooms? Just keep going, keep playing. Uh, after half-time, the Pies came out and scored a goal within 40 seconds, putting them seven points ahead. But then you kicked the steadier a few minutes later from a dubious free kick. Well, I didn't have the ball. Laurie Hill shouldn't have tackled me. He paid the price. I put it through. Uh, now, uh, Ian, uh, Ian Cooper kicked that ripper goal a few minutes later. He did, he did. Must have been almost 65 yards out, I reckon, and launched a huge monster torpedo that put us back in front. There were also some absolute sitters missed by both sides. No chance of him missing this. You couldn't see him missing. Up he comes. Oh, he's kicked it high. He's kicked it high. Yeah, well, Cowboy missed a sitter right in front. And I think Len Thompson and I think Richardson missed another one late in the third there. Uh, but Richardson made up for it a few minutes later, bringing the Pies within three points at three-quarter time. What did Alan Jean say at three-quarter time to get you up for that last quarter, for that final push? He spoke to the players. It was just unbelievable. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it now, to be honest. What he said was he told us we had an opportunity, really, to do something that no one in the footy club had ever done before.
Now, um, Dari, you've got to you've got to give us this from your perspective. What what's your recollection of uh, Green's point? No, he's going to bounce it. Oh, poor Potter! Look at him. Oh, these players are so. This is weird. madness. They're all on the ball. There Steer. they go. Up goes Miner. He gets a tap down. Potter has it. He can't break clear. It's taken by Green. That's a point. That's a point. St Kilda in front. St Kilda in front. Well, Ted Potter grabbed the ball from a knockout from Brian Minor. And as he was tackled, he handballed it clear and just sort of moved through the lines and grabbed it and kicked it towards the goal. I don't think he even saw the goals. I thought it was going out of bounds. Look, there must have been relief, but that wasn't it. You had to defend. And the Pies launched another attack with Tuddy streaming towards goal all alone. He took a quick bounce. And then Bobby Murray took that sensational mark that really saved the game. Next to the flank position on that outer side. They set themselves. Oh, There's a goal. Tottenham, a break. Tottenham kicks to centre half forward. They set themselves. And a mark for Bob Murray. If the point won it, then that mark saved the game, I'm sure. Brian Sirikowski was right next to Bob and told him to just kick the shit out of it towards the boundary line, which he did. And Alan Morrow marked it. As the siren went. There's Murray's kick to the wing position on the outer side. What was that feeling like? I felt absolute relief at the sound of the final siren. Obviously the fact that we'd won it, but also that we didn't have to come back the following week and play again. Who were the best players for the Saints today? Well, lots of things stick out. Uh, Barry Green's point, which is one of four for today. Cowboy was unbelievable with five goals. Binger did a top shot on Desi Tudnam. You might think Ian Stewart as well, who was amazing. But I think Ian Cooper was the best for us today. He did a super job all over the ground. Uh, what else stood out to you about the end of the game? Just the fans who'd waited a long time. You know, many elderly people with tears in their eyes who'd waited their whole lives to see the Saints win a flag. That's something I will never forget. And mate, I mean, tell us if you can, but uh, what did Denzi say to you boys in the rooms afterwards? He just spoke with such emotion. He told us that whatever we did, wherever we went, that he would always remember us for this wonderful moment we gave him today. Well, Doc, what a great place to finish this discussion. Make sure you savour this time. Congratulations, mate. Thanks all. The crowd going wildly mad at the moment. A wildly excited crowd here at the Melbourne Cricket Ground with St Kilda the winners of the Victorian Football League Grand Final by one point. St Kilda 10 goals, 14 behinds 74 points. 10, 14 74 St Kilda Collingwood, 10 goals, 13 behinds, 73 points It's been a long, hard road for St Kilda, but finally they've made it and have won the Victorian Football League Premiership after striving for many, many years Wow, okay, what a chance to talk to a legend. Here's some stats from that game. So St Kilda, goals, Cowboy Neal with five, Bulldog two, Cooper one, Griffith one, Moran one. Um, interestingly enough, Barry Breen kicked four behind and one out on the full as well. So his point is well celebrated, but he didn't have a great day in front of goals. <laughs> no. Um, for the Pies, Tudnam three, Gavlich two, Richardson two, Pitt, Graham and Wallace with one. Best for the Saints were Cooper, Griffiths, Stewart, Breen, Sirikowski, 
and Cowboy Neil. Now, a few, bits, few uh, little bits and pieces here. Supposedly, 1966 was the very first lap of honour. Oh, really? Apparently, hmm. uh, sorry, Alan Jeans kind of just said, you know, go, go and show them all the cut. They've waited long enough and off they went. Well, fair enough. I mean, if there, if there was ever a team who were going to start it, it makes sense that it was the Saints on their inaugural premiership, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, there's a few myths as well. Supposedly, there's this myth that Ian Sinman, who was a who was Jewish, um, wasn't supposed to play because he didn't get permission from his rabbi, and there's been this curse on St Kilda ever since. Oh, for um, the Saturday. Oh, that's really? A complete, it's a complete myth because he was a non-practicing Jew and he never considered not running out for the Saints. Yeah, okay. 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 Yeah, a bit um, of mail on it. Yeah. Um, and this is what they did afterwards. St Kilda players ended up at the Brighton Club Hotel on the Pean Highway just before midnight on that day. Pub was run by Ralph Sirikowski, the father of uh, Brian. At uh, this age of the six o'clock swill, um, they they kept it open all night. At midnight, there was a great procession of uh, people down to... There's a, there's a statue of Thomas Bent on the corner of Bay Street and Nepean Highway. Yep. And they had this secure jumper made up and they put it on top of him. That's incredible. And it became a bit of a tradition every year. They put, this, they put the premiership jumper on Thomas Bent. Now, other winners. Actually, there's some news on this. After the home and away season was finished, Richmond's reserves and under-19s teams were both stripped of any premiership points earned in matches in which they field Frank Logren, an unregistered player from the Trobe Valley. Yes. The reserves team, which went through the entire season undefeated, was stripped of 12 points, and it fell from first to second on the ladder, but still went on to win the premiership. The under-19s were stripped of 28 points, and they dropped out of the finals as a result. Under seven to, so under-19s, Essendon beat Collingwood. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's that's crazy. So the Tigers were able to still win it even after being stripped of twelve of basically three wins, which is massive. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But sensational, those Tigers. Um, all right, so some winners before we get into the retirees. Actually, McClellan Trophy was Collingwood as well. Yeah, okay. All right, so some winners. Premiership team, Charlie. Matt. The Saints. Can you believe it? Finally. Finally. Brownlow medalist, Moz. Ian Stewart, his second time round. Indeed. Um, the leading goal kicker was Ted Fordham with 73 goals. Yes. Wooden and there were 76 total, three of them in the finals there. Yep, great. Uh, Wooden Spoon was Fitzroy. Um, the highest score was, was Melbourne, 151 points. Lovely. We'll take Rick it. Has, uh, has announced through me that the winner of the McCracken Name Award goes to Fitzroy's Cess Reinberger. Because uh, this is because he's dreaming of faraway places and the chance to travel again. I'm guessing Cess uh, Reinberger has a very exotic sounding name to Kaz. That is why he has been chosen. Uh, now, I've also decided I'm going to start doing some uh, some backdating of the Rising Star Award. The, the oh, really? Yep. Um, and I judge Wayne Richardson of Collingwood to be the winner of it in 1966, edging out Peter Crimmins just. I mean, Wayne, Wayne Richardson's 37 goals, 26 behinds helps. What was the name of the guy who, uh, who just decided on the, uh, the, the basically the brown low before the, there was a brown low? C.C. Mullins. C.C. Mullins. So you you are now dubbing yourself new CC Mullins of the Rising Star. You're just <laughs> arbitrarily choosing who you think deserves it. Is that well, what's going on? I can go through this because we've got stats now. I can go through the stats. True, true. 
So it's based on a little bit more than just, oh, he, he looked all right. He was okay. Even though he was in New Zealand that year, he deserved it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it. All right. Um, some retirees for 1966. We've got Ray Gavlich of Collingwood, 160 games, 43 goals, one flag. John Peck of Hawthorne, 213 games, 475 goals, one flag. Ron Nolder of Hawthorne, 121 games, 44 goals, one flag. Phil Hay of Hawthorne, 107 games, one flag. John Devine of Geelong, 118 games, six goals, one flag. Alistair Lord, 122 games, 79 goals, one flag, one Brownlow. Barry Capuano, Capuano Nessendon, 118 games, 16 goals, one flag. Neil Crompton, Froggy, 99 games, 24 goals, only one flag. Yeah, but GC, I mean, without him, would we have got it? No, probably not. Ross Oakley, Ross the Boss, 62 games, 38 goals. Alan Morrow, 163 games, 151 goals, and one flag in his very last game. Premiership tallies as of 1966. Collingwood with 13, Essendon 12, Melbourne 12, Carlton 8, Fitzroy 8, Geelong 6, Richmond 5, South Melbourne 3, Hawthorne 1, Footscray 1, and... Kilda, one. Woohoo! But that means only North Melbourne of any of the clubs at the yep. this stage of the 12. Yeah. Yep. So there we go. And we don't have to wait too long for that one. No, another uh, nine years. Yeah. Mm. How exciting. Just, lo- just love to see it for the Saints. Do you? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, we. I know we give them a fair bit of grief. But- we? I know I give them a fair bit, <laughs> but they bloody deserved it. I mean, if they weren't, if they hadn't got it done in '66 with that team, then it was never ever going to happen, was it? Really? No, they lost a lot of those players afterwards as well, so it was really then or yeah. now and never sort of thing. And they've been so. I mean, there's been they've been so devastatingly close a few times since as well, and just yeah. It's, ama- it's amazing. It'll be very exciting when they get their next one. Yep. Which will happen yeah. eventually. It has to. Law of well, it has to. I mean, we, we, know, we know what happens. It has to happen, right? Mm. It's bloody hard to win one, though, as we all know. Well, <laughs> as, we, uh, as we sign off this 66th episode, the next time we meet, the grand final will have happened. <laughs> next, if if uh, in the next episode you don't hear, um, if it's just Tim on his own, you'll know that <laughs> Melbourne won because the rest of us are on some absolute bender somewhere. <laughs> or the opposite. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we're still just locked in, a, locked in a room trying to watching replays, trying to figure out what happened. Yeah, yeah. rocking on the floor. Or <laughs> well, the next, the next episode you hear is suddenly the 2021 episode. Couldn't wait. <laughs> that makes yeah. wait 57 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. So, um, yeah, tune in for 67. Thank you for all those St Kilda supporters. We know it's been a long yes. ride. If you know if you know any St Kilda supporters, make sure to, to let them know to download this episode in particular and, and have a little listen and, and enjoy it. I reckon I reckon 2022 is gonna be a good year for the Saints. I'm I'm putting it out there. So hopefully um Hopefully, there's a little bit of little bit of hope in the future for them as well. Indeed, we'll see. Well, yeah. Until sixty-seven, uh, Timmy Moss. Lovely to uh, be here with you now, and and Kaz, where, wherever he is out there in Radio Land. Um, uh, we'll see you guys next time. Hooray! I've been everywhere. 
Cause I've been everywhere, man I've been everywhere, man Across the deserts, bear, man I've breathed the mountain air, man I've traveled, I've had my chair, man I've been everywhere Been to Talamore, Seymour, Liz, Mormaluna, Barnam, Bormuch, Tokyo Hello and welcome back to Around the Grounds Let's get the 66th season underway Starting the VFA We saw a new club entering the uh, Division 2 Being Frankston with the association uh, attempting to get clearance from the Mornington Peninsula Footy League, they, after the third appeal, they were able to get clearance from the MPFL to get Frankston to transfer over. Additionally, Coburg were welcomed back to their original grounds, being Coburg Oval, as a VFL side North Melbourne moved back to Arden Street for this season. Let's have a look at uh, Divi 1. Port Melbourne won their ninth flag, and second in three years, defeating Waverley by 43 points. After winning the Divi 2 lead goal-kicking award last year, Preston forward Johnny Walk had won the Divi 1 lead goal-kicking award this year with 78 home-and-away goals, six during finals, with an overall count of 84 goals for the year. Waverley sentiment Alan Paul has capped off another great year, winning back-to-back JJ Liston medals, with 39 votes, becoming the first ever player to uh, to win the VF, uh, to win the Jadidison Trophy twice. Let's have a look at Divi 2. Geelong West Ben Nastaling won the lead goal kicking with 85 home and away goals, 7 during finals and 92 overall. With 48 votes, Geelong West Ian Williams won the BNF. Sally Long West couldn't get the three-peat with the awards, losing the grand final to third-place Paran, who won by 69 points, winning their, winning their first DV2 flag and third VFA flag overall. This will result in Paran being welcomed back into DV1 for the 67th season, replacing Wooden Spooner in DV1 Oakley. Still in Victoria, we're looking at the VFA. Old Zavs, Michael J. Mulcahy has won the J.N. Woodrow Medal with 19 votes. Melbourne High School's old boys, Aaron Harley, kicked 80 goals and won the leading goal kick award. And Old Pradians are back on the winner's list, beating Melbourne High by 9 points. Across the border to the Sandford, we are looking at Sturt winning their sixth flag, beating Port by 56 points. Norwood fullback Ryan Kneebone collected the McGarry Medal. And Port forward Eric Freeman won the leading Gokey Award with 81 goals. In the waffle, let's head across to Malabar with an inaccurate Perth winning their third flag, beating East Perth by 16 points, with Perth Barry Cable winning the Sandover medal. Swans District Bill Walker has won back-to-back Sandover medals with 20 votes. And East Frio's Bob Johnson has won the Bernie Naylor medal. The, far, the former five-time Melbourne VFL Premiership Ruckman kicking 92 goals. In the Tassie Footy League across the straight, Hobart and Glenarchy put on a show, playing in a tight contest with Hobart, win, with Hobart winning by a point and collecting their sixth flag. And finally, in the top end, the 66-67 uh, NTFL season, St. Mary's won their seventh flag beating Darwin by 22 points. And St. Mary's Leon, uh, 
Leone Gregory has picked up the Nichols medal for the league's BNF. Thank you and have a great day. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.